Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, man. Well, let's, uh, let's kick it off. Welcome to All the right. Former Action Guys podcast. You're here. I haven't seen you in forever, dude. It's been a long time. So for the people that are watching this that don't know, uh, you and I served together at 10th Marines. Uh, Joshua Gage, let's introduce you first. There's Joshua Gage here. He's a uh, JTAC, Forward Observer, or Fire Support Man, Fire Support Marine, if you want to be politically correct nowadays. Yeah. Um, Fire Support Man down at 10th Marines. We worked together at the, uh, basically like the ATS, teaching uh, the JTAC, JFO Primer. That's where we met and stuff. So, yeah, welcome to the show. Um, well, let's kick it off by, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and what you, well, let's start from the beginning. Why, what year did you join the Marine Corps? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me, man. It's been a hot minute since we've talked. For sure. Um, like, like you said, yeah, ATS over there teaching. Uh, well, I joined the Marine Corps in 2005. Uh, so that's when I actually graduated high school. Two days later, I shipped out to boot camp. Hmm. Do you now, would you do that again? Or would you like take some time off and then join? Uh, I'd probably do it again. I yeah. was a pretty uh, rebellious, rambunctious kid, so I think some structure, uh, as soon as I had some freedom, really helped me out a lot in life. Yeah. Now you're a lap mover too, right? I am. I'm a dirty lap mover. I'm a mud blood. Aren't you a, a seaburn dude? No, I was actually a com. I came in on contract. Uh, oh. And got yeah. stuck in uh, data actually. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, huh, I was <laughs> yeah. way off. There's so many well, lap movers ex- in the 6-1 community, so it's hard to tell sometimes. There are. And I got exposed to actually the 0861 community by uh, when I was data, I ran the EPLARs mm. uh, for the Ford Observers with uh, 312. So that's how I got exposed to the Ford e- Observer OMS. EPLARs, is that the old way to do, like, you could build the network with that thing? Yeah, it was the uh, and with the the location system they used. So, oh, okay. Uh, I remember one that had a weird keypad on it that, like, you had to plug everything in. One of my radio yeah. operators I had we had no one that knew how to use it and he like figured it out on his own. He just, really? I don't know. It was super weird. And he became like the battalion guy. So they try to pull him from the FSCC to go around to the, the battalion when we were on field ops to fix all their, their, uh, I guess it's EPLARs. So yeah. So you came in open contract. Why'd you do that? Uh, well, I originally en- enlisted to be a air crew, but I got a, a ticket when I was in the depth. I worked at a gas station, sold a pack of cigarettes to a miner. Mm. And uh, my recruiter told me that made me, Lose my security clearance. Uh, the only way I could go in was open contract. And I was like, well, I'll do anything to be a Marine. Yeah. Uh, so I came with open contract. He was probably just like, oh, I need to fill this other spot. So I'm going to lie to this. <laughs> I'm going yep. to get my yeah. seat. Nice. I joined in 05 and my clearance had been adjudicated since uh, 2004. Nice. I found that out later on. So so when I first came in open contract, um, well, first I didn't want to be open contract. My recruiter told me that infantry was full and I could do it. But it, it, would get, it was going to take some work. Um, and he said I was going to get it. I obviously didn't. But I told him one of the jobs I would do is forward observer. And I think because I had gotten arrested, I'd been arrested twice, actually, before I joined. So luckily, <laughs> I, I, I even was able to join. Um, but, yeah, none of the, like, jobs that they initially had, I don't think any of them could open up for me because of the inability to get a clearance. Um, when I came out of boot camp, they told me I was going to be a uh, – 
they told me I was going to be a geographic intelligence specialist. And I was like, what the mm. fuck is that? And then I like <laughs> looked it up and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be making maps. I'm going to be doing all this stuff. And then I went to MCT and they're like, no, you're a 3521. You're going to Camp Johnson. I'm like, what? What the fuck? You know, I was super pissed. So <laughs> um, what were you hoping for out of uh, your uh, open contract? Man, I'll be honest. I wasn't sure. I wanted to do something related to uh, aircraft, having originally signed up for air crew. But uh, apparently I had a good score for, uh, for you know, the nerdy side of the house. So they made me a uh, network specialist, which I didn't join the Marine Corps to work on computers. I could have done that in the civilian sector. So mm-hmm. that's why I looked for a lap move in a combat MOS. It's actually not a bad job for guys that get it, though, because it does set them up for some, you know, I heard, I've heard that they don't let them get some of the qualifications that they used to or the Marine Corps doesn't really pay for it anymore because I used to do like C++ and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it definitely does give a guy, I think, a, a really good foundation for a job for when, when they decide to get out. I mean, that's one of those I tell guys, I'm like, man, you can join. And normally it's not the, you know, it's not the rule, but normally um, you can either have really cool stories or you can have a job that's going to set you up for like a future job. So it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like you got to pick and choose which one you want. Um, now, did you join like did you have any other family in the Marine Corps or the military at all? So I had a, I have a grandfather. He's uh, passed away, but he was actually uh, a Marine uh, back. I, I didn't really know him too well and didn't talk too much about it. And I didn't even find out that he was until after I graduated boot camp. Uh, outside of that, had uh, some other family members in other branches, but I'm the only uh, career Marine, if you will. Okay. Okay. And what was what was your like driving decision to, to join the Marine Corps then? Uh, well, part of it was, uh, you know, I was from a small town, uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of options. Um, I didn't get good grades in high school because I uh, didn't apply myself. Mm-hmm. I pretty much just took the test, aced the test, didn't do any homework. So that's how I passed. Um, in the Marine Corps itself, I went in actually to join the Air Force. Uh, like I said, I wanted to be something related to aircraft. Mm-hmm. And the recruiter was never ne- never there. And then uh, <clears throat> one time the Army recruiter grabbed me up, started talking to me about their rotary wing. And then uh, lied to me a few times on getting me to maps and this and that. So I went in to tell him to, you know, F himself that I wasn't joining. And the Marine Corps recruiter came out, snatched me up. And then that was pretty much all they wrote. And that was history, <laughs> huh? So are you glad yeah, that you uh, ended up with the Marine Corps rather than like the Air Force or something else? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's everybody says like, oh, we're just arrogant because we think we're the best and this and that. But I mean, I I believe it. I've been doing it a long time and it's. Yeah, part of it's a cult. I get it, and, mm-hmm. and arrogance or whatnot. But I think uh, it is is one of the difficult branches to get in, and I take pride in the fact that I that I am a Marine. I, you know, that's a common misconception. I think is that people think that one that Marines are retarded, and two that it, that anybody can just do it. And I think the Marine Corps. When I joined in two thousand six, the only branch that was harder to get into was the Air Force. The Navy and the Army were both pretty straightforward i mean you could have a super low asvab score and have a lot of stuff wrong to get in the army and stuff um so like the the marine corps and the air force i think were the only two that required a a high school graduation they wouldn't take a ged or anything and i don't know if they still do that but i don't necessarily think that's the i don't know if that's the greatest thing but i think it does separate people because you know you're you're dealing with someone that can that you know is going to follow through on something and if you can't follow through on something as easy as high school then it's like and I, and I know school's not for everybody and stuff like that, but I don't know. Um, yeah, so 2005. So you came in about a year before me. I was in 2006. Uh, did you go? Where Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from a small town in north central Arkansas called uh, Yellville. Yellville. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. What's the population of Yellville, Arkansas? Oh, well, last time I checked, it was around 1,100 people, I believe. Oh, fuck. Big metro yeah. there going on. Yeah, graduating class 67, uh, no stoplights. Yeah. Uh, biggest thing to hit the town since electricity was the Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Is that the yeah. Saturday night hangout? Everybody pulling, oh, in, yeah. pulling in at the Sonic. <laughs> yep. So did you go to Paris Island or San Diego? I went to San Diego. Ah, that's too bad. Um, <laughs> uh, so after boot camp, you go to MOS school. You find or you find out you're going to be a data guy. Were you kind of bummed when you found that out? Yeah, I wasn't really sure what it entailed. I just knew that it involved computers. And prior to that, I had no experience in computers. I didn't even have a computer in my household till I think I was a junior or senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a gift that my papa had given to my family. Uh, and it was a family computer, and I didn't know anything about them. So I was kind of like, well, this is going to be interesting. And I didn't know anything about lap movement at the time, but I knew it's not something I wanted to do as a career in the Marine Corps. I mean, I joined the Marine Corps to fight the enemies of the United States, not type on a computer. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. A, a lot of people that, that don't have any kind of military background and stuff don't realize that there's a lot of jobs in the, mili- in the Marine Corps, specifically in the military in general, that you know don't involve combat. And even... I mean, even during that peak of like Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think 10% of the Marine Corps specifically saw actual combat. You know, a lot of guys went to combat zones, but most of the time it's like chilling at the green bean and stuff like that on Leatherneck or TQ, you know? Um, So it's to get into a job that, to get into combat, you one, you got to get it, not necessarily, but most likely you got to get into the combat arms job and then be lucky enough, I guess, if you will, to uh, get sent into that place. And then I think a lot of people get sent to combat and then realize it's not as cool as they thought. Like it's, it's exciting <laughs> and stuff, but it's, uh, it's different, you know? Um, but back to, back to being a data guy, do, do you think that that sets you up or do you think that like, or how do you think that helped you just in general now, you know, cause it's always good to have that a background and like technology and stuff like that. Well, I think with the technology, it kind of, I guess, piqued my interest in, in some of the computer side of the house, which, like I said, I had no exposure to. So I got a real quick uh, exposure, pretty advanced. I mean, as advanced as you can get out of MOS school. Mm-hmm. And I think now, especially in today's Marine Corps, it's definitely, definitely helped me out because it got that interest in computers, even though I didn't want to do it as my job. Yeah. I kept that interest on the personal side. You know, I'm, I like game and, and know how to, you know, crack some code and all that kind of stuff, real basic stuff. But mm-hmm. I think in today's Marine Corps, it helped out. Uh, immensely being technologically savvy. Yeah, you know, it, especially as a six one, there's you do a lot more like data and like networking stuff than you would think when you start messing with the FATIDs and you start doing like uh, trying to like we were talking about TLDHS, a tablet that um, was trying to do call for fire with because everything's moving towards a digital side. And I'm sure. I mean, you know it obviously. You, I've been out of the game for a couple of years now. I'm sure it's only gotten you know more towards that. Um, so, what was the first unit that you went to? Uh, the first unit I went to was uh, 312 there in uh, Okinawa. Oh, okay. So that's a good, I mean, at least you got an exposure to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I never went to Okinawa. 12 years, never made it to Japan. How was it for you out there? Oh, man. Uh, I'll be honest. I had a blast. Like I said, coming from uh, a small town, pretty pretty strict upbringing. So mm-hmm. didn't really get out much or do much other than, you know, hunt and fish and that kind of stuff. So going there it was it was a blast my first taste of freedom uh that's when they made the drinking age there at uh, 20 years old when mm. i was there mm. excuse me so i went over there i had a great time uh i feel like you definitely there's a different side of the marine corps over there yeah um just because of the camaraderie of when you get off work you're not all just 
you know, just disappearing like you do in the States to your houses or whatnot. Like everybody kind of stays together all the time. So I think it, it breeds a little bit of different type of Marine over there and, and type of uh, environment than it does in the fleet. But I had a great time. I loved, I loved Okinawa. Uh, I'd go back if I could. <laughs> I've actually had a few guys tell me that it feels like a different Marine Corps when you're on Okinawa and guys that come from like Okinawa over to main side are kind of throw, you know, taken aback a little bit by, how lax you know the environment is like dudes walking across the grass and stuff yeah. um, and you know and i've always heard guys say that when they you come out of okinawa you're either like really religious or like an alcoholic or in really good shape <laughs> yeah there's not much to do out there outside of those things right you can you can go to the gym all the time you can go to church or you can kind of be a partier right there's outside of that and plus i was young yeah. So I didn't know anything. I just went out there and partied all the time. And there's so much other stuff to do that looking back, I wish I'd have done like, you know, getting my scuba license and going out there, some of the best diving in the world. And some of the more, uh, I don't know if you want to call it touristy, but more mature stuff to do out there. I didn't take advantage of just cause I was, <laughs> I was partying and working yeah. and that was about it. Yeah. I really wish I would have had the opportunity to go just so I could go through and check out like the old battlefields and stuff, because <laughs> obviously Okinawa has a lot of history in the Marine Corps just for, you know, as it, as a battlefield. Um, it's gotta, I mean, it's gotta be kind of weird to live in an area where there's like actual remnants of war all around you, you know, cause the whole entire Island was a battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually went on a, a couple tours of some of the, the battle sites, which is something I did there that was, uh, was pretty amazing to see just, especially being able to be in like kind of the enemy fortified positions at the time and stuff like that and see how they fought and what what the marines that came before me had to fight through uh in some of those battles it was pretty uh pretty interesting to see honestly um and i was young at the time i didn't you know know a whole lot about a lot but it, it was still very interesting to see that did you ever have an opportunity to go out to uh iwo jima so there was one trip to to go to iwo jima um that i didn't make it on and i still regret it to this day uh, i would have loved to have got out there especially being more senior now and just having a, a better grip and understanding of our history and that kind of stuff. I really wish I'd made it out there, but uh, unfortunately I didn't. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, that was, um, we, when I was on the 11th Mew the first time, uh, we floated by it, you know, and they made, obviously they made a point about, hey, we're going by Iwo Jima if you want to go outside and take a look. And prior to that, they had made a plan where, Every section in the Mew could send like one dude or a couple people out and they were going to take a group tour out to the island and hike to the top of Mount Suribachi. And I was like, dude, that would be so sick. And I, we could only put put up one person's name. I didn't put myself up, obviously. I put um, Sergeant Flores, my radio uh, comm chief, because he was doing such a good job. And our master sergeant or our master guns, the ops chief was like, no, you know, we got to junior Marines first, blah, 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 you know got to let them experience stuff. And I'm like, whoa, dude, no one has got to experience this. Like I, I get it. Like that's a, that's a thing, but I don't know. I was really butthurt about it because we sent people out and so many people from the Mew fell out of the hike up Mount Suribachi that they didn't even go all the way to the top. <laughs> they stopped them. 
Man. They had to plug a bunch of people, you know, docs are out there hitting them with silver bullets <laughs> and including the guy that came from the S3 from the Mew that we sent. And um, yeah, Sergeant Major Black, who's now the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, he he was out there leading the charge up the hill and everyone fell out. So they stopped them and made them come back down. I was like, dude, if I'd have been on that and I'd been halfway up Mount Sarabachi and didn't get to the top and you were going to tell me we're going back because too many people are falling out, I would have been super upset i would have been real pissed i mean because that's just to me that's inexcusable you know what i'm saying dudes fought and died up that hill and you can't walk up it with a day pack with snacks in it you know like get the (laughs) fuck out of here you know yeah yeah that's one of the things i I wish i would have gotten to do but whatever man that's you know i don't know if you can go out there as a civilian but maybe one day um so at 12th marines did you have any actual exposure to like I mean, you were, you were a computer guy, you're a data guy, so you weren't really on the hill or doing anything like that. But did you ever get the opportunity to go out and, like, shoot the triple seven or anything? Well, so, uh, well, I mean, back then it was the nine or eight. So we had the one mm-hmm. nine or eight back then. It was before the time of the triple seven. That's true, um, yeah. I was on the hill. Like I said, I ran the E-plars with the FOs. So I was on the hill. That was, like, my exposure to the MOS. And oh, that's okay. why I decided to lap move into it. And, but I did get to, uh, you know, pop my cherry, if you will, on a one nine or eight down at the gun line, which was uh, a different experience then than it is now, you know, with the, the new rules and stuff we have, it's not as, uh, physically intense as it used to be. Oh I'll yeah. <laughs> did you bite the sponge? Oh yeah, man. You got to bite the primer, suck the sponge, you suck know, the punch sponge. the gun chief. <laughs> oh, is that a thing? I never heard oh, of that yeah. one. Well, it used to be a thing, you know. <clears throat> nice. Um, so how long were you at 12th Marines? Uh, so I was there full full term from 05 to 08. Now, in the middle of that, I did go to uh, headquarters battalion on Camp Courtney uh, to be the general's driver for a little bit. Mm. Um, and then I went back to 10th Marines after that. So. I remember you talking about that, actually. How was <laughs> how was that? Uh, one, how did you get chosen to be the general's driver? And two, how was that as a job or as a billet? Well, so I went up uh, on a board. I don't remember exactly who all was there. I know it was me, another, I was a corporal at the time, maybe another corporal, a sergeant, a couple other guys. And you pretty much just did a board in front of uh, the division and battalion sergeant major and a couple other cats and dogs. And then they selected who they thought would be the best. And, you know, back then I was a, a high and tight screaming motivator, you know, and AJ squared away, uh, you know, like act- a party, but it, work was work, you know what I mean? Yeah. Act like that <laughs> changed though. Come on. <laughs> You've oh, you, yeah. you always I mean, been a little motivated. A little different now. A little different now. Yeah. Um, been through some stuff and, and done some stuff that changes your perspective a bit. but For sure. Uh, so I got selected for that. And, yeah, they just pretty much told me, like, hey, out of everybody else, you got selected to do it. And so I started doing it. Um, it wasn't a bad gig. It's, you sit up there in the you know on the command deck and, you know, make the coffee and vacuum the carpets and clean up the offices. And then when the general needs to go somewhere, you know, you drive and take him wherever he needs to go. So yeah. it wasn't bad. It's supposed to be a pretty good gig if they're like trying to push a guy forward for possible like future meritorious promotions and stuff like that. It's not, not given to a shit bag. Obviously you're driving the general around. I remember, yeah. I remember the first time I met somebody that was a general's driver. We had this machine. I think he was a machine gunner when I was with three, six, this dude was a, he played in the NFL, like, hurt his knee or something. So he quit playing in the NFL. He's like with the Panthers Dang. or something. Yeah, I know, dude, people were like, did he really like people didn't really believe it. And we were in Marja in 2011 and the, uh, Redskins cheerleaders flew out to fob Marja and which is crazy. Cause that's, you know, just a <laughs> shitty place to fly into. Yeah. And, uh, 
we were, we were, I was outside and he was walking, he was going to get chow or something like that. And all of a sudden this cheerleader comes running by like, Oh my God. And jumps on him, wraps her legs around him and stuff. And like, Oh my God, she remembered him. She was one of the cheerleaders for his team back in the day. And I'm like, Holy, that's pretty wild, dude. Yeah. So, and then he came back from that deployment and he became the general's driver over at, uh, I think second Marine division, but yeah, Um, well, it probably would have ended in some type of meritorious, you know, promotion had I not gotten in trouble while I was doing it. (laughs) Well, if you want to talk about that, you can, or we can just move along. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it, it happened. We okay. Can, we can move on. Um, That's all right. So how long, how long were you in Japan for? Uh, from 05 to 08. Okay. Wow. So you did a full term out there, huh? Yeah. Well, I did the two years, and then I extended a year for a deployment. Uh, then ended up getting canceled, so I just, just stayed an extra year out there for nothing. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, and then did you start your lat move package while you were in Okinawa, or did when you came to the States? Did you already have orders to go somewhere else in the States? No, so uh, shortly after I finished my restriction from that NJP, um, I actually was very surprised I could lap move because I was a Lance Corporal and uh, mm. I'd been reduced. But the monitors did a road show. So I got to go speak to the uh, 0861 monitor. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess the the perception and skills that I had in the previous board for the general's driver, I still had them when I went and talked to the monitor. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, he enabled me and allowed me to lap move into the MOS. So I did the package prior to PCSing to the States. So I went from Okinawa straight to uh, Fort Sill to MOS school. Nice. That's really the way to do it. I, I, I highly recommend people that if there's a if there's a monitor roadshow in their area, that they should definitely go talk to them because that's how you can really make things happen. Because if you don't, you're just a number on a sheet. And where there, you can actually go and talk to them and show them, I don't know, at least have a person-to-person like conversation that, you know, you maybe sway something. Because like when I lap moved, I, I they came out to Iraq. The monitors came out to Iraq. And they initially told me there was me and another guy waiting. They were like, hey, wait here. We're, there's one boat space left. And we're waiting to find out who gets it. So me and this dude are sitting there. And then they come out and they're like, hey, man. Um, neither one of you guys got it. Sorry. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? And, and I'd already talked to the monitor and stuff like that. And then I, you know, I, uh, went ahead and did some other paperwork and I was going to come back in and reenlist the next day. And they told me, uh, I came in the next day and that's when they told me like, Hey, we, we open up another boat space for you. And I was like, no way. Like, so that's how I ended up getting, I was the last <laughs> dude to get it in 2000. Nice. Yeah. 2009. Um, so yeah, I mean, so you were a Lance Corporal. That's a little different. I was a Corporal getting kind of close to Sergeant when I lap moved and and that kind of swayed my decision of what job I wanted to pick because I didn't want to go into something that I felt like, like initially I wanted to be infantry. I didn't think lap moving from being a motor team mechanic at second MLG to being an infantry guy and, and going to be a senior Corporal to a, an, maybe get promoted to Sergeant before I actually get to the unit would be a good idea compared to, this is in 2009. So obviously these guys had been in for you know, 06 to 09, which is a pretty rough time frame to be in uh, for deployments and stuff to Iraq. You had like Ramadi and stuff was going on and everything like that. So I just didn't think that it would be a good idea for me to go into that kind of MOS. And that's why I chose to be a fire support man. Um, and my buddy, Teddy, actually, um, he's the one, he brought it up. He, he reminded me about that job. He's cause he was like, yeah, I'm going to put in my lap move package to be a fire support man. And I'm like, Oh yeah, shit. I'm going to do the same thing. That'd be cool. Um, <laughs> What what was like the ultimate like decision that made you like okay I want to I want to try this job out. Uh, so actually the the point when I decided that's what I wanted to do was actually I was on the hill and I we could see all the gun positions. Mm-hmm. Um, you could see multiple gun positions, and they did. And I mean I was ignorant to the MOS then. Now I just knew the very basics of the call for fire they taught me. And I, so I believe it was it was either I think it was a battalion fire for effect, and I could see all of the gun positions. 
and see them shooting and then see the impact area where all the rounds were impacting. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was awesome to see that. Yeah. Um, and so that's what really cause was the point where I was like, I'm going to do this job. Yeah. Um, and I decided to, to start that lap move package. It is super, it. it is super impressive when you see like a massive amount. I mean, the most impressive one obviously I've ever seen was at Bragg when they do the regimental shoot and then they do a reg- regimental mass fly in a general, you know, so he can watch it. I think, uh, last one I did or last one I saw, uh, my scout, you know, I sent him up there and he's the one that got to do the call for fire for this regimental mass. So Lance corporal standing next to the general, you know, and calling it in, but it is impressive. It's like, geez, man, one dude is making all this happen. And it kind of opens your eyes to the, uh, the amount of, I don't know which one, the influence that you can have on the battlefield. Um, if you're proficient at your job, obviously. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love the job after I lap moved. I was super pumped. Um, what year did you go to MOS school? Uh, so it was the end of 08, uh, end of 08 and then right into the beginning of 09. Okay. Okay. How'd you like Fort Sill? Uh, it was interesting. So by the time I got there, I'd already been uh, promoted to corporal. So yeah. I showed up to Fort Sill as a corporal, which is pretty nice being in a, an entry level school as an NCO already. Yeah. I had a lot more freedom than the rest of the students, but I mean, a lot in Oklahoma, that's kind of the, the armpit of America right there. <laughs> that place ain't a place you want to live. I'll tell you that much. People, you know, people bitch about Jacksonville and, uh, Oceanside outside of Camp Pendleton about being the, about being shitholes right outside the base. But I have never seen worse towns in the, the base towns for army bases, you know, like yeah. every army Fayetteville. base, Fayetteville, Vietnam out there, you know, you got mm-hmm. Lawton. It's like a, I don't know. It's rough. It's definitely way worse than, you know, I never thought Jacksonville was too bad. Like a lot of people don't like it, but I didn't think it was too bad out there. No, I don't mind it. Yeah. Um, how long did you, did you do any OJT before you went to MOS school or did you get orders right to school? It, it was pretty much just what I had already learned on the hill from being up there with the dudes because they're pretty open about teaching, you know, the, the enablers up there on the hill with them, teaching them the job. So I already had a basic uh, understanding and had some reps doing call for fire, mm-hmm. but I didn't do just strictly uh, for observer OJT. I just went straight to the schoolhouse. Okay, cool. I I had to sit at, no, I won't say sit, I did field ops and stuff. I went to 10th Marines in nine months. I was in at 10th Marines for nine months before they sent me to MOS school. So That's a hot minute. I'd already, dude, I'd already been the chief for a field op. <laughs> you know, they, they made me the chief for the field op because my chief had left and uh, my, my uh, major had to go to a meeting. So I'm like running a field op and I hadn't even gone to MOS school yet. I was shit in my <laughs> pants. Like I was like, oh man, I hope I don't fuck this up. You know, like I'm clearing yeah, right? actual fires. Um, but it was cool. And you're right. Going to Fort Sill as an NCO is way better because the boots that were there when I went in 2000, uh, 2010, they just got treated like garbage. You know, they wouldn't let them <laughs> had no liberties. Can't have TVs in your room. They, remember everybody would eat in the battery office. Like after, if they had to order food, they couldn't eat it in their room. And <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That place is ridiculous. Um, so when you, when you lap moved, what, what unit did you end up going to? Uh, I went to 10th Marines. Uh, specifically the, Tango. Yeah. Okay. Tango 510. 510. Okay. Yeah. Where was 510 at? Were you guys on uh, end street or were you guys one yeah, of the ones that were on off, right off end? Okay. Okay. It was down at the end there towards the river road. Yeah. Uh, it's where, I mean, where I work now, it's not 510 anymore, obviously, because mm. you know, <laughs> they don't exist, but yeah, that's where I was at, at the end street there by the, by the water. Yeah. How did you like, uh, 10th Marines compared to 12th Marines? Um, it was different. Like, in the biggest, one of the biggest transitions is coming from Okinawa to the States, which is completely different. Cause I remember in Okinawa, man, uh, it was, the NCOs ran stuff. 
Yeah. Like, that's how it was. NCOs ran stuff. If you had to see, like, your sergeant you were messing up, if you had to see your staff sergeant, like, you were you were really jacked up. And heaven forbid if you had to see your gunny. Yeah. Um, now, in the in the States, it, it, it seemed like to me, just coming there from Oki, that it, the NCOs weren't as empowered, so it was a little different. Uh, almost like being a corporal was like a glorified lance corporal, essentially. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a different transition, but I mean, I had some good dudes uh, in my liaison section there, some good leadership uh, that helped shape me and mentor me as an 0861, uh, mostly on the enlisted side, and some good officers and, and some not. You know, it's, it's hit or miss just like anything else, but I definitely had some good staff and CEO leadership that helped uh, bring me up in the MOS. Yeah. No, I was I was highly fortunate as well. Um, I, I showed up to 210, and uh, at the time, Staff Sergeant Klein had just checked in back off the, I think he came off the drill field, um, but he had just come in. And I mean, I, I honestly couldn't have picked a better person to, to do OJT under because this dude is a walking like manual. You know, he would, when we would be in the field in the FSCC, when we were done shooting for the day, you know, you set up the radio watch and kick everybody to go, go to sleep. And, um, he would sit there and fall asleep reading his three, three tax 16.6 or three tax 16. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, dude. Um, but yeah, that, that was the reason he, so because he was such a good teacher and the battalion respected him, like we could do our liaison section could basically do whatever we wanted because the battalion commander knew that we were getting our work done and we were proficient. And, um, like when we would go to brag, he would come out to our tent and hang out cause he'd get tired of hanging out in the COC tent. And he knew <laughs> yeah. that our radios would all be up and that we, we knew what was going on. So he'd come over there and hang out so he could be away from his own flagpole, if you will. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Definitely having a good, solid staff NCO mentoring you and teaching you, um, is important. If for me, I mean, at least you were at 12th Marines before you lap moved. I was with second maintenance battalion. Like I showed up and <laughs> Sergeant Delara, you know, my buddy Delara, he had to teach me how to plot on a map. You know, I don't know. I'm a sergeant now and I don't know <laughs> yeah. any of this. He's like, yeah, this yeah. is how you do it. And, you know, and it's funny looking back now on stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure, you, you know, rug, he's the one that first taught me like, uh, final attack headings and stuff like, like figuring all that stuff out. So, um, so now being at the battery as a forward observer, how did that feel after you had come from one, you know, working with liaison, but not necessarily being part of liaison? Uh, it was definitely a lot different. So being, being in the comm shop and then just going up on the hill when they needed me, you know, I was, it's very pretty structured in the comm shop, but then coming to the battery and being in the liaison section, it, after I had deployed with 510 with two six, it was comparatively, it was very similar to the, the life that FOs have over in the infantry, right? You're just kind of what they do over there. It's kind of, you're doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you do your job as required, but other than that, it's not crazy structured like it was in the comm shop back when I was in that MOS. Yeah. It's, it's kind of nice being a lap mover and the, and the fact that you can point out stuff that the guys that you, the job that you used to have, you can be like, Hey, that's not right. Like you're not doing that right. Or when they try to BS you about something, you're like, no, what are you talking about? That's not even, you know, um, I had to tread lightly though, because being, having been a mechanic prior to, I, if I spoke up too much with too much knowledge, I could easily get put back <laughs> on working on a truck or something like that. Um, yep. so I definitely didn't want that to happen. Um, what, how long were you there before you found out you were going to go on your first appointment? Uh, I think it was around eight months to a year. I mean, it's all of it kind of blurs together after a certain amount of years, but I think it's about eight, eight months to a year, maybe. And when I found that I was chopping. Do you who who were you deploying with? Uh, I deployed with uh, Golf Company Two Six. Okay, so and for those that don't know, 
traditionally, you know, your forward observers are at the artillery unit. Obviously, now they're, I, I assume they're still like this, but the, when I was there, they were at the headquarters battery. They had headquarters battery with all the scouts there. And then as deployments came out, you just chop over to the infantry unit. And the life of a forward observer, a scout, you feel like the bastard child of artillery because everything's your oh, fault. Yeah. Like artillery is messing up. You know, the rounds aren't hitting right because of the observer for whatever reason. You know, that's what everybody says at least. And then you chop over to the infantry and you're an attachment. So no one over there cares about you until they need fires. You know, no one understands yep. or cares about fires until they need it. And then they're like, hey, could you do that thing where you blow stuff up? You know? Um, so what was it like chopping from, uh, from the artillery unit over to the infantry unit and like getting your feet wet working with those guys the first time? Uh, so it was definitely, definitely an interesting experience for me because like I said, I didn't do any deployments when I was in Okinawa. The one I was going to do got canceled. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was my first, first go at it. And, uh, I went there as an FO and yeah, I was an FO, but I was also kind of like a radio man because being prior com, I did a lot of OGT on the radios. So I was very proficient in radios when I went over there. So I kind of dual had it as a horror observer and a radio guy, but it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely eye opening going to my first CACs and seeing live, uh, combined arms, you know what I mean? On those ranges out there and seeing that kind of stuff. It was definitely an interesting experience that, uh, that really opened my eyes to kind of the combined arms environment, if you will. Yeah. So you were down on a company fist in. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, and I'm, I know when I was there, at least they were saying they weren't letting lap movers be chiefs um, until they had done a deployment. They also weren't letting lap movers go to become a JTAC either until they had done a deployment. It was like, uh, you got to go kind of earn your piece, you know, you know, make sure everybody, you know what you're doing. Um, unfortunately, I got stuck as a chief on my first deployment as a scout. They were like, hey, we need a chief and you're, you're pretty good at what you're doing. So you're going with three six, which wasn't too bad. Um, like you said, my scouts, a lot of my scouts actually carried the radio, some, you know, because they were so proficient and calm. So it's not, it's not uncommon for, because infantry is short on stuff. They use their radio operators in a different fashion. They'll put them on radio watch or whatever. But if you can have a guy that can carry a radio and do call for fire and whatever, like why not just give him and let him do everything? Um, I didn't get to do that. I sat in the uh, COC most of the time. I did some operations with 3.6, but nothing major. I did like a, like a helo insert, and, and I'd go out like once a week basically, but I didn't get to do like the cool stuff I thought I was going to get to do with, you know, like my scouts were doing. However, none of them got to do a call for fire. I did all the fires actually either, you know, from the COC and stuff. So that was the cool part, I guess, cool part about being a, a chief at the time. Um, when when you were working with your company, how how hard was it for you to like, embed with them and then kind of try to, you know, mold them to use you like you should be used as a, as a scout. So I guess it's just, uh, kind of like anything you go into as an outsider, right? You got to kind of, kind of earn your peace. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be able to keep up with the dudes, right? You can't be falling out of stuff. You gotta be able to keep up with the rucks and the humps and whatever else it is. And then your job proficiency. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if you come there and you show, that you can be, you know, a humble consummate professional and be very proficient at your job, then yeah, they'll, they'll pull you in, welcome, welcome you. But if you show up and you know, you're a bag of ass and you look like ass and you can't perform and, or you come there and you're arrogant, you know what I mean? They're going to ostracize you. Yeah. And so being very proficient, but also humble is, is important and it enables you to kind of be able to shape more of how you're used because they trust that you're uh, knowledgeable in your, in your MOS. So there are a lot more open to listening to you because a lot of guys go over there and they think they can pull the wool over their eyes, but come on, man, you're not the first, uh, you're not the first fire supportman they've had over there. Yeah. This ain't their first rodeo. So they know if you're trying to bullshit them, so you can't be pulling none of that or, 
or you won't fit in. Um, so it, it worked out fairly well. Um, what, which company did you say you were with? With 2-6? Uh, golf company. Golf company 2-6. Who, yep. who all was on your fist team? Or your fist? <sighs> if you remember. I'll stop my head. I can't even remember, man. That's um, fine. I forget so many names. Like, yeah. It's unfortunate. Especially but. as much as we bounce around, man, and, and switch and change. And especially further on in my career as I bounced around, you know, to all these different uh, units or teams or whatnot. It, it kind of blurs together, and it's hard for me to remember, to be honest. Um, yeah. No, but, I mean, cool. the, I remember the guys, the other JTACs. Um, so I had, uh, Sergeant Kalo. I don't know if you, if you knew Kalo, but Jason Kalo, he, uh, yep. he passed away on that employment. Yep. He was one of the JTACs. And then we had uh, Sergeant Davis was another one, uh, that was there. Uh, so I remember those guys. I don't really remember like the fist leaders or anything. Cause mm-hmm. we didn't do a whole lot of fist stuff after CACs. It was okay. kind of, I was just there embedded with the squads going on patrols. Yeah. So how did they use your fist? Did, did the rest of your team, like your, because for those that don't know, a fist is made up of a lieutenant that's an 0802, usually a lieutenant or a junior, like a super junior captain if he's still a fist leader. Um, you have your radio operator and then you have your scout. Um, how Did they use those two guys, like the lieutenant and the radio operator for anything, or, or were you the only one that got used? So they generally pulled the lieutenant in, yeah. uh, from my recollection, in a lot of the more of the planning phase of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be in there too, but he'd, he'd be in there, especially with the JTAC, and they'd be doing a lot of the planning portion. Um, but I was just kind of the day-to-day guy that would go on the patrols with the dudes, right? I'd throw my radio on my back, and I'd go out and do comms or, you know, never actually any fire missions because half the time there, it seemed like we didn't have anything supporting us. Um, so I was just out there, you know, just in case we got something and we needed it um, or to carry the radio and just be out there with the dudes. So yeah. that was kind of my role out of the fist. The other guys, uh, I wasn't tied in too much with them. And then a lot of the time the radio operator didn't go from the fist. The company radio operator would go because I was in the company uh, staff a lot of the time. So it would be, you know, the CO, the radio operator, me, you know, a couple other cats and dogs. Okay. Um, back to Kalo. Yeah, I knew Kalo. He was um... – him and Delara were like the first two sergeants I met when I got to 210. Super cool dude, uh, great guy. He was like, I don't know, he was the first one of the first dudes to sit down and just talk to me and like, I go to the field and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting a little, you know, I don't know. He was a good dude. Yeah, um, he was. He was a great dude, man. Great mentor. Great mentor. He mentored me a lot in that phase before I was at JTAC. And really, he was kind of my drive and inspiration to become the JTAC and, and that I did. And, and the drive behind me wanting to be so proficient at it was was really kind of his legacy and honor that, that moved on through me is, is the way I looked at it. Because he was he was a big driving force in my development, and he was uh, he was a great dude, man. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's missed. Definitely. For sure. Um, so when you guys deployed, you guys were heading into Marja, right? Or where were you initially going? Because you took part in Operation Mostrock, correct? So we were, yeah, it was after uh, 1-6 did the clear. So 1-6 had established uh, Kapazadi, and they were they were there after they'd done the clear. And then we came in and ripped that with 1-6 and Kapazadi, which okay. was south of, of Marja, so the yep. south side down there. Yeah, yeah. I remember Azadi. We had uh, one of my teams was down there. That was a, and when I was there in 2011, that was a quieter area. And the, um, the captain, the company commander that was in that area when I was there did not like fires dudes for some reason. He wouldn't, he took my scout and made him the, the company radio watch and took the radio like comm dude and put him out on patrols to be whatever. And I'm like, dude, this dude knows how to do radios and like all this other stuff. Like, what are you, what are you doing? And they just wouldn't have anything, you know, they wouldn't have any part of it. And it was a pretty quiet area for most of our deployment. And then towards the end, there was some kind of attack that happened. 
And this dude, no shit, called my phone. Um, I was in the COC at, at 3-6. And called the phone. He's like, hey, hey, uh, Sergeant Kramer, this is so-and-so. You know, we're having this stuff going on down here. Is there any way you can um, get one of those goalpost things going or something? You know, like, <laughs> set it like that. This is towards the end of the deployment. Yeah. And I'm like, sir, I'm tracking what's going on. If you open up your fire's window, because they wouldn't even monitor the fire's window in Merc Chat. I'm like, if you oh, open really? up the fire's window, I've already got the goalpost hot and I'm talking to the HIMARS battery right now. Like, dude, you fucking, you know, like just <laughs> yeah. the epitome of someone that would piss you off, you know? Um, so, so what was it like, man? What was your first uh, deployment? You know, what was, you, you made it, you know, you were a Marine, you came from a civilian, you wanted, you wanted to join the Marine Corps and, and go to war and stuff. And then you, you got that opportunity. Um, how did you walk away from that? Uh, definitely different. Um, it's, you know, especially as a young Marine and, and everything, it's kind of glamorized, right? Like mm -hmm. it's kind of glamorized just from what you see on TV or whatnot. So you can't wait to go and you get there and it's, it's not as, as glamorous, right? As you think, or as cool. Now, now don't get me wrong. Like, be, being in in combat or in firefights or even just out on a combat patrol is is exhilarating and there's there's an adrenaline there and a, and a rush that you can't compare to anything else um but at the same time you know your your friends are getting wounded or, or killed or and you know there's the casualties that come along with it that make it very difficult mm -hmm. um now that not to say i would change a damn thing you know i'd go back in a heartbeat and do exactly the same thing and, and deal with the pain and the loss because of just the the bond that you get with those dudes you can't compare it to anything else in the world yeah uh, it doesn't matter what anybody says that bond you build with those dudes living side by side for months in the dirt you know patrolling getting shot at doing doing all that kind of stuff man mm -hmm. it, it's an amazing bond that you build with those people for sure man and that you know i think i think that kind of bond and what you're talking about and those kind of living conditions, um, they really bring you together as a team and they make you really appreciate, you know, the, the little things, not just in life, but just like in the Marine Corps, you know, like the little comforts and stuff that you get. And, and you also see like real leadership, you know, you, the real leaders really stand, stand apart and you see who, who is out there to, um, to lead and, you know, just make sure their dudes are good and make sure everything works and that we're, conducting combat operations the way we're supposed to. And then you see the guys that are out there that are chasing awards or they're too scared to go out and do anything because they don't want to get anyone hurt, which I understand you don't want to get somebody hurt, but you still have to be able to do the mission at the same time. Um, and I think that really was one of the things that made me, it left a really bad taste in my mouth after I did the Mew because I don't know if you've ever, I'm not sure if you've been on a Mew or been on ship, but the, hierarchy of rank is like old school um as a staff sergeant it'd be like why are you walking down this p-way like you're not an officer like who are you and i'm like dude i work over here you know I, i'd be getting stopped like <laughs> like legitimately you know i'd have to give up my guys to go go do fucking laundry and wash the officer's laundry and stuff like that and deliver it to them and i was just like this is this is ridiculous man i came from a unit where i slept next to my captain you know we both slept in the same fucking dirt hole and we ate yep. the same food he ate before me where on ship you're starving down in the troop birthing and the officers can eat as much as they want and stuff. Every once in a while, they'll have like a steak day. They come out and make steaks for you. You're like, oh, here you go. And it's like, dude, fuck you, you know? <laughs> here you go, peasants. Exactly. No, that's exactly how it is. It's how it feels too. I'll be and, honest. I dodged that my whole career, man. I never wanted to go on a Mew. Uh, I never wanted to get stuck on a ship. And I got lucky. I didn't physically dodge any like, hey, you're going on the Mew. I just got lucky in everything I did. And there was never an opportunity for me to go. And I'm, I'm blessed by that, I think. Yeah. That's kind of wild. You never did a 31st Mew while you're out in Oki. 
Don't most yeah. guys rotate through that, especially since you're on the island? Uh, I think so. I mean, I'm not. I'm not really sure. I didn't. I didn't get any exposure to the muse while I was out there. Did you get to do any kind of traveling while you were out there to like Philippines or like Australia or anything? Yeah, I went to uh, Thailand and got to do Cobra Gold. Nice. I never uh, got so to. I've was... never made it to Thailand. Was it everything you thought? It's insane. I'll tell you that. Did uh, you, you got Libo in Thailand? Oh yeah, we got four days in Pattaya Beach. <laughs> nice. Um, so, which is. Uh, the training is insane too, uh, but also the Liberty. It's like, I mean, it's a grown man, grown man's paradise there in, in Thailand. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's nuts, but the training is crazy too. Like you saw that, uh, Marine Corps times article, I think it was recently about like the Marines got to stop killing the Cobras and drinking the blood. Like, yeah, oh, you yeah. do that. Like you catch the Cobra, cut its head off, drink the blood. Cause the, you know, they believe over there that if you drink the blood of the Cobra, you get the strength of the Cobra. So yeah. it's part of the jungle survival training, which is pretty interesting. So you drink the blood, huh? Yeah, you drink the blood. They go around the horn and you know drain it out of the snake, and then they drain it into the rest of it into a big vat of whiskey. Oh. And uh, you take a shot of the the cobra blood whiskey there. Nice. <laughs> also ate some bugs and stuff. It was uh, it was interesting. It's funny how when you always work when you work with these foreign nationals, the uh, weird stuff that you end up eating. You know, my uh, <laughs> when I was yeah. on the Mew, we we did a exercise in Malaysia, and I, I had to stay on board the ship for it, which is kind of good, I guess. They were all flooded out and living in the mud basically. But Michael Farrell, who's been on the show a couple times. He ate monkey and iguana, and I'm like, ooh, man, I don't know about eating a monkey. Like, I f- it feels a little too close to home to eat something <laughs> yeah. that has thumbs on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, where else you eat monkey and iguanas but, you know, overseas? Um, so in Afghanistan, back to that, what kind of what – kind of, what was, like, your average day, like, patrolling and stuff? How, what did you end up doing? Um, so it depended on if we were, you know, if we were the squad that was patrolling that day or if I was getting attached to the squad that was patrolling that day, I kind of bounced around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we got up and went on a patrol pretty much every morning, late morning and then early afternoon, uh, maybe it wasn't our squad, but it was a squad that was out. Uh, it was generally there was a tick every morning and every afternoon. Really? Um, and so part of the time I also was COC, you know, radio watch on mm-hmm. Merc, all that kind of stuff. So every day, yeah, it was almost the same the same thing. Every day in the morning and afternoon, we're getting saltos. You know what I mean? We're reporting them up, and dudes are in contact. Yeah. Um, it kind of eventually would start to slow down, um, but it was pretty consistent when we first got there. And then obviously, you know, you have the the IED strikes on occasion, mounted patrols going back and forth, resupply, all that kind of stuff. And then I was also the uh, the SOG. So I would, you know, post and relief the guys on the different posts for the cop and then, you know, just, you know, go around to the different posts, make sure they were good, kind of built up uh, some of the, you know, um, some of the concealment and, and cover and stuff around the posts and, and really got those built up. So the guys were a little more protected and, and uh, just safer up in the posts because, you know, it wasn't it wasn't irregular that when I first got there that the cop would get, you know direct fire it would get shot like we were eating breakfast i remember one of the first days i was there and there was rounds hitting up high on the buildings it was like a tall cement structure and little chips of cement you know falling in our chow yeah so it wasn't irregular for that to happen that's what it was like when i got to sangin i flew into uh fob jackson and uh that night like one the advisor team that we were taking over for we're super pumped that we were there they were like oh thank god you know like we're going home um and so we had a cookout that night. They had gotten steaks and stuff, and we're out there grilling with them. And, dude, almost every night, it was just tracer fire that flew right over the camp, <laughs> and it would, hit, it would hit stuff sometimes inside the camp. I remember one of the uh, – we had these um, plywood wag bag stations that they had, someone had built, 
And one night we came out there, or the next day we came out there, and there was a hole through it. It was like a 7.62 round that had gone through, like head, <laughs> head height. And we're like, oh, shit. So then, you know, they sandbagged up the uh, wag bag station and stuff like that. But yeah, it's weird. You get used to it, though. You're like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here cooking a steak. You know, it's just like I'm safe right here. I'm behind this wall. Like nothing's going to – it's not, it's not yeah, like you can good. just fall down and hit me. But it's just uh, – it's a weird environment for sure. Yeah. Um, so you went out on patrols and stuff like that. What was your average patrol league, do you think? Uh, but average length, I don't know. So it varied. We did a, the longest one we did was like, uh, I want to say it was three days. We went out and cleared an area where we established a new patrol base. So we went out there for three days, big loop around, uh, stayed out in like compounds overnight and stuff. But most of the time, I think it was, you know, a few hours or so. Um, I wasn't out on the patrols uh, every single day. Yeah. Um, a lot of the squads were though. They were out there every single day, man. Uh, just hooking and hooking and jabbing every day. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely taxing. Um, but yeah, a couple hours average, except for that three day clear. It was, it was pretty long. What um, patrol base did you then, build? Uh, I want to say it was Beirut was, was yep. the one out there to the West, I think. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's been a while. My memory's a little foggy, but I think it was yeah. Beirut out to the West. Yeah. What did you normally carry when you were out on patrol? Like, what did you have on you? Uh, so, obviously, I normally had my uh, my weapon system, full mags, uh, water chow, radio, extra batteries, um, carried a vector. Uh, let's see, what else did I have out there? I don't remember if I had binos or not. But all the usual kind of stuff you carry, you know, maps. Uh, it was all, you know, there, it wasn't like tablets or any of that kind of stuff then. Yeah. You know, paper maps and mostly the the heavy stuff was though was the radio, all the extra batteries and water, especially on that that three day that three day pass. I was carrying a lot of stuff, man. I remember it was heavy. I bet, man. Were you carrying a one seventeen Golf or Fox? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a Fox then. Probably, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the Golfs would have been just coming out then. Yeah, I remember when we were there in 2011. Uh, the three sixes Com Chief wouldn't let anybody take the Golfs out. He's like, these are for data use only, and they just like. I'd go out there and they'd be sitting on the shelf, not being used at all. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> Come can, on, we, man. can we fucking carry that? Like, this is like literally half the size of these other radios. You guys aren't even using yeah. them. And they just wouldn't let anybody use them. I'm like, God, fucking dicks. Um, <laughs> did your, did your like layout of what you carried on you change throughout the deployment? Did you like, okay, I'm, why am I carrying this? I don't need this. I get this. I need to bring yeah. this. Yeah. As I went through, I think I, I kind of moved stuff around just, uh, some of it's, you know, creature comfort, just, okay, that rubs wrong here, that yeah. rub wrong there, or, or like, I don't need this or I don't need that. It, I think it's definitely dynamic and changes, but I think that's really any deployment is you kind of feel it out and mm-hmm. what you need, what you expected you needed, maybe you don't, or something that you didn't expect you need, you do. So adjusting your kit accordingly, I think uh, happens most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, you know, when I was there in 13 and saying, and I, I, I was taking like four magazines out, you know, I'd take a box of ammo and put it in my pack, but I, I had like four mags. Cause I seen guys that would carry like six mags or sometimes eight mags, like being ridiculous. I'm like, all right, man, like if we're getting into a point where you need that many magazines, like, I don't know, something else might be going on. Like we need, I need to be doing my job over here as a JTAC if that's happening, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and I, I would carry the, I had the, uh, what's the little mini, uh, vector, the, the little the plurf. Yeah. The plurf. I had the plurf. Mm-hmm. Um, which was pretty good. It, it quit working on me twice in two different firefights where anything beyond like 20 or 30 yards, it was telling me like 50 yards. It Mm. wouldn't give me the actual range. So that kind of sucked. And I, I, that honestly gave me more incentive when I came back to just push on the junior guys. Like, dude, your, your equipment's going to fail. Like this is the newest piece of gear that we got. And you know, these came out of the keyhole suites is what they were called at the time. Um, 
And I was like, it's going to fail on you. So you got to have a plan to, to back up like that, that technology. So, yeah. Um, all right. How long, um, well, is there any, is there any interesting like engagements or anything you want to talk about from that deployment? I mean, not particularly, like I said, I went on patrols and, and got in some stuff sometimes, but it wasn't like I was out there, you know, just, just in gunfights every day. That yeah. wasn't me. That was, I, the credit goes to the, the threes, man, that were with me out there. Those dudes were in that shit every day and, yeah. uh, hats off to them, man. They, uh, they did a hell of a job out there. I didn't Nothing realize, but, uh, props I, to those dudes. I didn't realize it was that active in that area still after the clear yeah. had been done and stuff. Yeah, man, it was. It, we were honestly surprised when we first got there how active it was, so close to the patrol base. Um, I guess they kind of, you know, got emboldened after one six got there and kind of got set in. Yeah. Um, especially like, fucking props to those dudes, man. That clear was no joke. So those dudes, I I can imagine, were just just wore out by the time they got there. You know what I mean? We're wrapping up. So we were, yeah, we were honestly surprised, and and some of the. Also, the proximity of some of the IEDs uh, mm-hmm. to the cop were pretty close, but those dudes are sneaky, man. <laughs> they're sneaky over there. So, dude, they're ninjas. getting up under under our under our vision wasn't uh, wasn't too difficult for them. You know, they've we, been doing that shit for a long time. We would have we would have uh, route clearance go through, and they would get backlaid. You know, as soon as they clear a route, I, specifically, I remember in Marja route alligator. Um, the route clearance would go up that and clear that entire route, then turn around and come back down it and then get blown up like twice on the way back. You know, yeah, it's like, it dude, nuts. and it's so hard to catch those dudes putting in an IED, man. They were quick. I don't know. They had a whole system set up. It was just, I don't know. It's crazy. Um, were you, how often did you go on a mounted patrol? I know you said you, you know, you went out every once in a while, but was it mostly <laughs> on foot or was it more mounted? So I would say it was it was probably a good mix. So yeah. most of the time when we were doing mounted patrols, it wasn't like it was on foot. On foot, we we're doing like presence patrols mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But when we were mounted, it was generally going somewhere to you know we had to go over here and resupply something or go do this meeting or planning for something. So that's normally what it was was like maybe logistics or admin movements, if you will. Um, but that didn't stop them from you know <laughs> sometimes engaging the convoys or whatnot. Yeah, I was a VC for my truck most of the time, and you know ninety percent of the time I just was trying to keep my driver from driving into wadis. So <laughs> nice. Uh, when you, did you know that when you were, when you came back from that deployment that you'd probably get screened to go to TACP school and, and do the whole JTAC thing? So I wasn't sure. Um, you know, like I said, Kayla had a lot of influence on me and I was mm-hmm. interested in it, but I wasn't sure how I was going to progress when I got back. Yeah. Honestly, didn't know. I was really, really just couldn't wait to get back. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That, that was my first time deploying first time outside of the States in that kind of environment. And I was really focused on just getting back and being able to be in the United States. Yeah. Um, and then once they started talking about it, you know, I was one of the first dudes threw my hand up that I wanted to go to TECP. Mm-hmm. No, that's cool, man. <laughs> it's uh, when, when I came over to 10th Marines and they were like, Hey, you know, you're a Sergeant. Well, so Gunny Klein was like, he's like, Hey, what do you think you're going to be doing here? And I'm like, uh, be the link between artillery and infantry. You know, like, I'm, I'm not sure. He's like, yeah, that's a Lance Corporal's job. You're a Sergeant. You're going to be a fire's chief. And I'm like, damn it. Like, he's like, unless, <laughs> and then he's like, well, unless you become a JTAC. And I'm like, yes, I'll do that. Like, you know, let me do that too. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yes. Uh, so I had to, I had to cut my teeth first as a chief. And then I got to the opportunity to go to TCP school. Um, I, and it was cool. I got to work with some really good dudes before I went that, um, like you, you know, like you said, it's always good to have a good influence, someone to teach you, you know, Tony Musselman, he was, uh, yeah. he was actually 
Kalo's replacement. I remember after. Yeah, Kalo, I remember. Yeah, Kalo got he knocked my bottle of Tapatio over and broke it after he came and replaced. Uh, that's a replaced Kalo. That's a huge deal overseas. Oh yeah, when, if he watches this, Tony, you still owe me a bottle of Tapatio, man. <laughs> he he probably doesn't have time. I, t- I actually talked to him like two weeks ago. He's in the middle of. He's a he's like a fish and wildlife dude, and he's in the middle of uh, some kind of spawning season for some fish. So he's out. <laughs> spawning fish or something so because i was i'm gonna try to get him on the show at some point but um um yeah guys like that though that are just professionals you know they they take the job seriously and it's just good to have people like that around it's nice working with professionals and stuff like that and um yeah i don't know at 10th marines i I felt like i had a really good i don't know most of the people i met i never had too many issues with you know most of the dudes i worked with were were really good professionals and, and willing to teach other people and bring you up to speed and stuff like that. So, um, what did you do to prepare for TACP school when you got back? Uh, so I, I'm, if I remember correctly, I went relatively soon after coming back cause I went in 2011, which is when I came back from that deployment. So mm-hmm. I did the, uh, the online primers, <laughs> which are worthless. So, yeah. So I did the online primers there on uh, Marine net and then, uh, I think that was that, that might have been pretty much it, man. And then I went to TCP school. How'd you? Th- what'd you think about TCP school? Um, I definitely thought it was uh, it was interesting. So you know that wasn't. I mean, well, that wasn't too long after they started allowing enlisted JTACs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was still a lot of uh, seemed like a lot of kind of officers should be doing this mentality in some of the people, not all the people, but some of them. Yeah. Um, but it was good, man. I went there and it. it I learned a lot. Um, obviously, I, I came out successful, uh, graduated the school, and it was. Uh, I, I think I was well prepared just from from learning from dudes around me in Tenth Marines uh, before I went. When you came back from school, did you stay at at five ten, or did they move you up to regiment? So I came back from school and I actually chopped right for my next deployment with two six again, and I went straight out of school to a CAC, so pretty much like out of the pot into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, yeah, you know, yeah. I never, I never, as a JTEC, I never went to 29 Palms and got to do any controls. Like, I don't oh, think man, I got any controls out of 29 Palms. Yeah. Which is uh, like the place nuts. to do it. Yeah. Especially during a CACS, man, it was really just pretty much getting my shit pushed in because I was brand new and, and didn't know anything about anything really except the basics. And we didn't have all the technology then. So I'm, you know, I'm running through linear town and it's 110 degrees out. I'm sweating all over my map and smearing map pen everywhere. They're throwing arty sims at me. I'm just shitting my pants. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it was an invaluable experience uh, as a junior JTAC coming out the other side of Cax. I feel like I was a much better JTAC than I was had I just went to TCP school and then, you know, to a deployment or, or done something else. It was phenomenal. And then also getting to actually see firsthand live ordinance. Yeah. That you can't. You can't uh, you can't trade that off for a sim or anything, man. Seeing live ordinance is an eye opener. For sure. Honestly, I think every JTAC should should do that before they employ it in uh, in combat. That was one of my that was one of my biggest complaints is I never saw a live bomb drop until I got to Afghanistan. You know, like they didn't. I went to TCP school at at uh, EWTG Lant, so we went to Navy Dare and then OP five over at Camp Lejeune and stuff like that. And yep. um, it's all sim ordinance or it's all like the dumb, like the 25 pound. What's it? The Mark 48 the inert. Yeah. yeah. The inert round. Um, so yeah, my first, my first live bomb was like, or five live bombs that I saw was in Afghanistan. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. That's now I know, you know, like, good, good <laughs> yeah, know, you know? that looks a lot different. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, I say, yeah, I don't know. I can't believe they even let me go you know, without having seen a real bomb. But at the time, and you know as well as I do, at the time, the tempo for JTACs were like 
just out of control. You know, yeah. that, that first class of dudes like Kalo and Rug and all those dudes, they, you know, immediately after TCP school, like you, it was like, all right, here's your deployment. And then I remember Rug was deployed. And before he even came back, he already knew what his next appointment was. And that was yeah, like, that was like, the, yeah, it was like common theme then. Um, so that was like, Hey, I want to go be a JTAC and it's super cool. But the, the downfall is you're never home. Um, so I guess if you can put up with that, it's, it's not too shabby. Um, do you think TCP school like prepared you for like 29 palms and, and then going to overseas or do you think it was a good base? I think it's a good baseline. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just like any other really entry level school, if you will, it gives you a baseline and, uh, essentially the playbook to work off of, you know what I mean? If, if you can't call an audible, if you don't know the playbook, so yeah. you have to know the playbook front and back uh, before you can start calling those audibles and doing some of that, that varsity level stuff yeah. um, that, that necessarily they don't teach you there, but the, especially in the time frame there, you're not going to get to that level, um, in that school yeah. until you get out and get some of that experience. And that's, that's part of the reason uh, with the the TNR now, like we didn't have a TNR when I when I first became a JTAC, it didn't exist. Yeah. Um, and then I left the fleet before they, uh, you know, and had it in place. And then when I came back to the fleet recently, there's the TNR, and I'm like, oh, what is what is this? I don't even know what this is. Yeah. And so now there's the you know the the other level codes of the TNR that we have to get those dudes through before they can get designated. Mm-hmm. Whereas me, I came out of the schoolhouse and I'm designated, right? So these dudes now have more stuff they have to do outside of school before they can get designated to be a JTAC. Yeah, that was something I would tell guys I, that kind of surprised a lot of people. I'm like, yeah, I never went through a designation phase. Like, I came out of TCP school. I went out to the Hill, like, twice, and they're like, all right, man, you're going to Sangin with this advisor team. And I'm like, oh, fuck, because the, the, <laughs> yeah. the thing about being on an advisor team is you don't have any other JTACs. You don't have an air officer. You don't have facts that you can be like, hey, man, you know, I'm going to lean on you, and we're going to learn from each other and stuff like that. So. I was like a nerd. I was in my pubs constantly. Like I was trying to like absorb as much as I could because I was really afraid that I was going to mess something up and get someone killed or something like that. Um, just because I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't, I hadn't done it yet. You know, it was just like, I'm learning it. I'm on the fly, like trying to figure all this stuff out and I didn't have anybody to lean on. How often did you, or how, how would you say that support structure worked for you, you know, working in an actual air shop with other people that you can learn from? Do you think that was, did you have a good like group of JTACs uh, on your second appointment there to, with two six? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I had a good air officer, uh, phenomenal air officer there uh, in the battalion, and I actually deployed uh, with the battalion. So I was essentially the the assistant air officer uh, okay. uh, for the battalion. So uh, we worked uh, well as a team, a lot of support down there for the guys. And now it wasn't near anything like uh, like Marsha. You know what I mean? It wasn't kinetic like that. Where were you at on um, the second deployment? Uh, I was in Nawa at uh, Fab Geronimo. Okay. Okay. So it was it wasn't nearly anything like Marja, but uh, I had a phenomenal air officer. He's still uh, he's still in now, uh, Boomhauer. Um, he's uh, C130 guy. So he was my air officer at the time, and he was a great dude to work with. Uh, had a had a phenomenal experience. That's awesome, man. It's real hit. I I hate to say it, but it's like hit and miss when you have your non-shooter pilots. You know, some of them are it is. some of them are really good, and some of them it's like, dude, I don't really feel comfortable with you controlling anything. You know, and it's not their <laughs> fault. It's just they don't come from a background of either a combat pilot, like a shooter platform, or they don't come from like us, like an observer background, where you know you're yeah. used to target location and stuff like that. So, it's definitely a steeper learning curve for those guys. Um, when you went back to two six, was there a lot of the same personalities there? Did you deploy a lot of the same people? Uh, yeah, so there was a lot of a lot of familiar faces there, especially since it was s- such a quick turn mm-hmm. uh, from the first deployment to the second. 
Um, so, I mean, we still had Sergeant Major Fry there, uh, who was a phenomenal Sergeant Major for, for both deployments. Uh, nothing but good things to say about him. And and I had, you know, a lot of people that I knew, and my relationships there were already founded uh, and, and pretty much established. So it was, it was a relatively easy transition going back to the same unit, which isn't normally the case, right? I just got lucky, and it happened to line up with the deployments. Mm-hmm. The timeline just lined up perfectly where I ended up chopping in 2-6 again. It was just... I don't know, like fate or something. It, it normally doesn't happen like that, at least in my experience. Yeah, no, that's definitely that's definitely awesome because now people can vouch for you. You know, the people that knew you already can be like, yeah, this dude's legit. You know, so there's no like, because yeah. you never know when you get new guys, you have to, you question them at first. Like, okay, is this guy going to be good? Like, can he hold his own or, or you know, yeah. can we let him go or do we need to keep him in tight because he's not that great? Um, and that actually helped me out because I, I actually got in a, got in a fight at uh, Camp Wilson and uh knocked this kid out <laughs> oh really and yeah and uh well he was he had been doing some stuff he shouldn't have been doing and, and he i mean he swung at me first but i knocked him out and so the first arm was you know he was pretty upset about it but sergeant major fry already knew me so he called me in and asked me what happened and i explained to him you know verbatim what happened and, and that relationship that i already had with him because he knew me he knew i was an honest person uh he you know i told him what happened and he you know, nothing came of it because I was in the right and the other dude was in the wrong. So those yeah. relationships do help out, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you're an asshole, life is a lot harder, you know? Like, you're going around <laughs> yeah, pissing everybody off, fact. burning bridges. You got shirts to say that, man? I, sh- I should. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I should make should. some. Make that a sure, dude. Um... So when you got back from that second deployment, or is there anything you want to talk about specifically about that second deployment? Uh, maybe the differences no, man, between was, the first I mean, and second? It was, it was pretty boring. It was, I was just sitting up there in the talk, you know, running sensors or running the zone. Uh, one thing that was kind of cool was, you know, the it was one of the test beds for that uh, UAS helicopter they were trying back in the day. Oh, okay. It was kind of cool. The dudes would, uh, it had a cockpit still. So I'd talk to the dudes on Merck up there. Uh, I don't remember if it was you know, Leatherneck or what, but they'd actually throw like uh, Red Bull and stuff in the cockpit when they when they had it fly down there, so I could nice. go in there and get some Red Bulls out. And dudes took care of us. Um, it was it was good, man. The child was a lot better because it was the defect there. So that was I nice. heard, <laughs> I remember that we were down at Fob Marja without running water, and we would guys would go over to Geronimo and they'd come back and be like, dude, they got milkshakes. And we're like, Sam, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, they got ice cream, bro. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like this is yeah. crazy. Uh, it was bad living, man. Yeah. 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 It's like I said, man, you, once you've like, okay, for me, for me, 13, 2013 living in Sangin was the worst living conditions I've lived in. You know what I'm saying? It was fire shooting. Like I said, they were shooting every night over the camp. So tracer fire all the time. I mean, suicide bomber outside the camp in the bazaar. There was RPGs getting shot at our helicopters. Like, and you're living in a, you know, I was living in a dirt bunker. Basically I was living in like a HESCO bunker um, yeah. you know, it was just living in dirt, barely getting any food. Like we were starving out there and, um, it was my best deployment a hundred percent because it is. I was doing my job. I felt like what I was doing, you know, I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. You know what I'm saying? You have a yeah. sense of purpose and stuff like that. Whereas in 2009, when I was in Iraq and I was a mechanic, I'm like, why am I fucking on this base, man? Like I'm, people would complain <laughs> about their AC not working and, 
you know, there was some guys that could get internet um, in their cans, you know, in the little trailer things that we lived in. And they would complain about the internet. They'd be like, oh, we're in River City, so we can't get on the internet. This is bullshit. I'm like, you know we're in River City because someone just got killed, right? Yeah, like, somebody fucking died, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know. And dudes are just like, whatever, man. I'm like, so it's, you know, that comfortable living is not not it. You know, living out there. No, it's not. You you grow a bond with people, and then you you learn how to appreciate the little things, you know? I you do. I'm such a happy, like happy go lucky person. Like nothing doesn't bother, you know, nothing bothers me. I just go around and people are like, you're not upset about this. I'm like, dude, I don't care, man. Like, and you know, in the grand scheme of things, like this doesn't matter, you know, like whatever. It's just shitty living like that definitely makes you appreciate it. And like I said, I I walked away from that feeling like that was the opportunity of a lifetime because I got to do my job and I felt like I was efficient and proficient and, um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm sure you felt the same way, you know, from, oh, yeah, from man. your first I'd or have, second appointment. I'd have left GMO to go back down to Azadi in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, when I was in Fond Marge, like I said, we didn't have running water. And then we, we eventually moved up to Camp Hansen that had running water, but it was still not, not great. But, um, they flew me into Leatherneck one time for a fires conference. I'm not sure why Sergeant Kramer got sent to Leatherneck <laughs> to go sit in this fires conference. Cause it was all like E eights and E nines and like, yeah. you know, O fives and stuff. And I'm sitting there in like frogs with my rifle. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> and, um, after being there for two days, I'm like, I need to get back to back to the fob, man. Like, this is not it. And like, just, yeah, just the stupidity, you know, and I had my list, my grocery list that everyone gave me of stuff. They wanted me to try to carry I, I, cans of dip. Yeah. I came back uh, or I left with an empty ruck. I, I was like, all right, I'm gonna take my empty ruck. Some dude was trying to, he's like, oh, hey. oh, oh. He's, he's like, if you find one, I'd like you to pick up a microwave. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Let's see if I can find a <laughs> Where microwave. Where am I going to put it, man? I'm going to lug it on the helicopter back. Excuse me, guys. Let me put my microwave over here in this seat real quick. <laughs> um, but yeah. So when you came back from that deployment, that's about the time we met, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was after that when I came over there to ATS. So you, were you there in 13 then as well in uh, yeah. Afghanistan? Yeah, I think I, I think it was so. It was 10 to 11, and then I think uh, 11 to 12 actually. I think is what the second one was. 11 to 12 or 12 very beginning of 13. They like I said, the dates all kind of yeah. Kinda you were, so you were you were at you were at regiment for a little bit then before I got there. Yeah, yeah, I, didn't get there I went until to August. regiment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so so for those that like I said at the beginning, that's where you and I met. Um, and we were teaching the JTAC and JFO primers, which was cool. It was me, you. Who would we have? Me, you, Cheese. We had Gator. Um, yep. Freaking Nate. I don't remember his call sign. Um, and then Tom Miller. And I don't remember his call sign either. And Top Corinthi. And yep. that was awesome. That was such a, it was such a like, breath of fresh air like coming there like we had one job it was like hey teach guys to be become jtacs or become jfos like get them ready for the schoolhouse and go support units for tcp shoots mm-hmm. and top Corinthy, i think was i think he gave us a lot of flexibility to do because he i mean one his own plate was pretty full already oh, yeah. and he gave us the you know the leeway to make decisions like hey this dude's not going to make it to school i think we should drop him and, you know and he took that he took that like okay like i trust you and I'm going to, I'm going to verify, but I trust your judgment, you know? And I thought that yeah. was a great opportunity for like a staff and for a junior staff sergeant to come into and, and, um, yeah, have exposure to that. And it also, for me, it really made me a better JTAC, um, like a traditional JTAC, if you will, just because we were constantly going over the material and learning the stuff. And, and I used everything that I got there. I actually 
kept, I think I burned a CD before I left there of all the courseware. And um, when I went to like Anglico and we were on the Muse and stuff, I would teach JFO and JTAC primers on the ships and, and to the snipers and the recon guys and stuff like that because um, it's, you know, what if the JTAC gets smoked in the head? Someone's got to pick up the radio and, and do the call for fire. So I always thought it, I looked at it, it was my job to make sure other people around me knew what the hell was going on. That way, if, you know, I got smoked, like, hey, man, you got to step up and save the day because I'm gone now. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. That was just such a good time. And, and it, it's weird because it felt like we all knew each other for a long time, but it was only a couple months. You know, I was only there for a couple yeah. of months and then um, executed orders. So once I punched out to first Anglico, around the same time is when uh, you screened to go over to Raider Battalion or MARSOC or however. What, what do you guys prefer to call it? I mean, it's over big picture. I mean, it's MARSOC. But when I came back, it's funny. People were still, still calling it... Uh, what were they calling it? MSOB. Mm, uh, yeah, that's MSOB. when I first went there. It was MSOB. Okay. Um, but then, you know, it changed to MRB, but dudes in the fleet were still calling it MSOB when I came back. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is, this part of the, the interview is, um, one of my main reasons I wanted to have you come on because I know there's a lot of guys that are out there that are 0861s or that, you know, are in that community or working their way towards that community that want to go over to Raider Battalion or Marsoc to, uh, to become a JTAC. And it's not really clear to the guys that are, you know, and the big Marine Corps, like what the steps are to get over to that. And then like what happens once you get there. So without giving away, you know, trade secrets or anything, if you could talk about kind of like what your screening process was or what people could expect, if that's something that they're interested in doing. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I had, you know, pestered top Kroeny to, to let me screen over there. And he, he talked to uh top Nickham at the time. Uh, who was over there to, to bring me over and screen and they agreed and they brought me over and uh, you know everybody has a simulator so they have a simulator too um, mm-hmm. and you do you do some some TDGs and stuff uh, before you actually step up in the simulator so a lot of stuff that really focuses on your your thought process uh, as a JTAC and being able to think not necessarily outside of doctrine but outside of the box when it comes to employing doctrine in situations. Mm-hmm. Um, or being able to, as people say, it's a thinking man's game. Think about stuff uh, that is going to be applicable to the cast. That's maybe not necessarily what is the very basic thing to think about. Um, that's kind of a roundabout way of talking about it. But uh, being a thinking man, essentially. Um, so you go over there and do some of those problems, and they they really dive deep into your thought process uh, as you're going through it. You know, you you have to have a reason for everything you do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do something, you can't just say, well, I, I don't know why I did it. You know, there has to be a reason behind that. And then you step up to the simulator and, and you execute some controls in the simulator and they assess your ability to control. Um, and then also at the same time, uh, you know, it's your, your personalities uh, getting assessed as well because it's very personality based. You know what I mean? Uh, you're working on a small team with, with dudes that are that are very close and have been working together a, lo- a long time a lot of times. Um, what's so the, personality is a huge part of it. What's the average team size? Um, I mean, it fluctuates between, you know, who you're with. Um, but it's, it's, I didn't experience any teams that were, you know, more than, more than 20, um, generally less than that. So yeah, that's what I figured about something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty small, okay. pretty small. And so you went over, did you find out immediately the, that you had been selected to come over and continue through their training or did you have to sit there and wait a while? Wonder what the hell happened? <laughs> Well, it's a funny story, and uh, Top Crane probably, you know, weigh in on it, but I wasn't sure if I was going to get selected initially, so I, I did the right things during the TDG. Um, so there was a thing specifically involving the bomb, bomb fall line and me adjusting my final tacketings 
in consideration of that that was good. But uh, so I was nervous, right? Like any screening process. So, so I threw a fat lip in and uh, <laughs> while I was doing the TDG and stuff, no issue there. Well, Top Nickham was also dipping at the same time and we had matching dip cups. <sighs> and then when I went up to the simulator, I forgot to take my dip out. So I was up there on the simulator and then Top Nickham grabbed my spitter while I was controlling. And I was like, hey, Top, that's my spitter. And he's like, what? I'm like, that's that's my spitter, Top. He's like, no, that's my spitter. I'm like, Top, your spitter's over there. And I pointed to his. It was, you know, over on the wall or something. And so he gave me mine back. And then when we had left the screening, you know, Jeff kind of chewed my ass for having a dip in while I was up there. It's a simulator <laughs> or Top Granny kind of chewed my ass for having a dip in while I was up there on the simulator. So I wasn't sure, you know, what, what that was going to mean for my screening. So it took a, a little bit before I found that I'd, I'd actually passed and been selected, if you will. Wouldn't that be horrible if you didn't get selected just because you were dipping inside the simulator? <laughs> so I think I never talked to, to Warren about this, but I feel like maybe he was kind of testing me on the whole personality aspect of, because sometimes as a JTAC uh, on a team, like you're the dude, right? You're the SME when it comes to everything, mm-hmm. uh, fires and cast. So sometimes you have to be able to assert yourself uh, and assert your, I don't know, your proficiency, not, not be disrespectful, but be able to tell somebody something when they do it. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like in the back of my head, maybe he was testing me at that point. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you're 100% right. I mean, obviously, I was never over over there with you guys or anything like that. But I had a uh, similar kind of situations uh, working on an advisor team. Like I said, there's no air officer. There's no other Ford observers. I had no JFOs. Um, I know sometimes I know sometimes the, the Raiders um, will have a couple guys that have gone to TCP school or have gone to uh, SOTAC. Um, yep. but, but that's not their main job. Like recon, that's like one of five things that they've gone to learn. So it's, you know, if, if he can, if he has to do it, he can, but it's not like some, someone you want to put on there if you, you know, don't have to. And, um, I remember one time, okay, we were on a rooftop in Sangin and we had, um, we had some guys, we had this area called the, uh, we called it the broccoli head. It was this clump of trees across the river, uh, from a village and the enemy do the enemy would bring a little boat across the, the, the river and put shit in the, in the tree line. And we knew they were storing weapons and stuff there, but 13, three, fours battalion commander would not let us like clear anything on these dudes. So what we, I mean, we were with the Afghans, we're Afghan advisors. So we would just go, Hey, Afghans, we're going to shoot a mortar mission. And we just have them shoot their own mortars because, you know, we don't have to get approval for that. And, uh, my team leader was up on the rooftop with me. He was this major, uh, good dude. You know, he's, he's not a bad guy. I don't, I don't dislike the guy. And, um, <clears throat> you shot the first round and it impacted and I'm up there like a good observer with my binos, like, Oh, impact. And I, you know, and I'm, and I'm doing the correction in my head and I look down cause I'm on the rooftop. I look down to yell down to my, the captain that's working with the Afghan mortar guys. And I hear this major, I hear my major go Kramer at 800. And I'm like, at 800, like what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> and I was like, add 400. And, um, he's like, Hey, I said add 800. And I'm like, I looked and I'm like, well, it's not going to hurt anything. I was like, add 800. And he fired. And while they're getting ready, he's like, you know, I know you're a forward observer, but mortars are different than artillery and blah, blah. And he was trying to do this thing with me. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, sir. And the rounds shot and we're way long. He's like, Oh, those are long. I was like, yeah, they look like they're about 400 meters long. sir. what do you think? And he's just kind of looked at me like, <laughs> he's like, okay, okay. I'll let you do your thing. Point taken. I was like, all right. And then that was no, no hurt feelings. Nothing like that. It was like, Hey man, this is my job. You got your job. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. And you don't tell me how to do my job. And you're right. Sometimes you have to, you know, 
put yourself out there and be like, look, this is my spot. You know, I'm going to piss in this spot. This is my spot. Like you say, which my spot, you know? So, <laughs> and I've heard of guys going over to Marsoc and they butt heads with their teammates and it, they end up getting kicked out. They end up getting kicked off a team or even out of the unit back to the fleet because like you said, personalities just don't, don't come together. And in a unit like that, you know, the missions are real, you know, it's not, you're not getting like bullshit missions, you know, this is so calm. So it's not like you're, I don't know. So I can see how that can be, become an issue. Did you, did you ever run into a time where you were like, you know, you and your teammates would butt heads with each other about how something was going to be employed? So not really. I mean, I was on the first team I was on, I wasn't on for deployment. I was just on there just with the team filling the, the billet uh, for some of their workup. And uh, there was some points on that team where some of us didn't necessarily get along or, or uh, it felt to me like maybe they didn't care for enablers that much. Mm-hmm. But that also might have been just because I was a fill-in for some training. I wasn't actually deploying with them. Wow. But outside of that, man, it, it went pretty well. Like most of, the, most of the guys there, they understand why you're there. And as long as, again, you display that you're proficient in your job and you know your job, then generally you're not going to have any issues. Now, you know, some guys are proficient at their job, but they come over there with like a chip on their shoulder or mm-hmm. being really arrogant. And that's not going to jive well, man, especially on a new team. Uh, it's a, that's just not going to jive Yeah, that or, or honestly being out of shape over there is, is pretty much, you know, you, you, you gotta be in some type of shape because a lot of the missions you're doing out there are going to require a lot of stamina. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, uh, I've heard guys that, you know, they've, they told me again, and I've never been over there. Dudes are like, Hey, it's all big boy rules, man. It's on you to go PT and do it. And you, it, the expectation is you come into work and you're ready to come to work. Like outside of that, you do whatever you want. They'll send you to whatever school you want. As long as you make the time for yourself to do it and you maintain everything else that you're required to maintain as an enabler in that unit. Is that kind of how it it seemed while, you know, you were there? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's definitely big boy rules, man. And that's one of the things too, when you go over there, like there's nobody holding your hand. There's nobody telling you, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's, it's on you. Uh, and that's why it requires, a, I think, a higher level of maturity to go over there and be successful and not get kicked off a team or not get kicked back to the fleet because it is all on you yeah. uh, to do everything. Um, and especially when it comes to when you're on a team and, and most of the time, you know, you have an air officer at the company, but generally you're not co-located a lot of the time. So it's all on you, um, everything. Whether well, it's whether it's CAS, you know, UAS, uh, fires, anything that really flies through the air or has any type of fires effect on the battlefield, you're expected to be a SME in that. And part of that is is being in your pubs on your own, uh, studying that stuff, knowing everything, and then everything big Marine Corps wise, you still have to do all that stuff. So making sure that you're up on your training, you're doing your PFT, your CFT, all that kind of stuff, it's it's on you. <laughs> Excuse me. No, you're good. Um, what was it like when you, you found out that you were going over there? They're like, hey, I got accepted. Now I got orders. I was really excited, man, because uh, obviously, you know, coming up as a kid and wanting to be in the military my whole life, being in some type of special operations environment, I, I'd always wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, I told my, my wife and they, they give you a brief on what to expect when you go over there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're, you're going to be gone. Even when you're stateside, especially as a JTAC, you're gone because you, the small time you have stateside, you got to get your currency. You got to keep your currency. So you're always gone training all over the country, doing different shoots and stuff. So I was super amped and I knew it was going to be taxing on my wife and, and kids. So I, you know, I talked to her about it and, and she said, Hey, this is something you've wanted to do for a long time. Um, so I support you hundred percent and I understand that it's temporary because as an enabler, it's, it's a five year gig. So it's not like I'm staying over there permanently. So, uh, super excited, but definitely 
expectations uh, with the family is a very important part for anybody who wants to go over there. You got to understand that, man, because if you go over there and, and your family's not prepared or you're not prepared to be separated from your family that long, you're going to have a bad time. How, how many days a year do you think you were gone away from home? Like percentage oh, wise. Oh man, it was with deployments and it's over there. It's turn and burn like uh, such a small JTAC pool there. You're constantly turning and burning. So I don't know, man, like 80% of the year, like it's, it seemed like most of the time I was gone. Yeah. That's what uh, I've the heard. times I was home was pre-deployment or post-deployment leave. And then like you're worried, you're worrying about what schools you want to go to, right? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. So schools were, were, it really depended. Um, you know, everybody makes a whole big deal of, of jump school, but for me, it was never, it, it wasn't something I was interested in. One, some dude just want to jump out of airplanes. Me, I prefer flying on them, you know, <laughs> not big on jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. I never uh, got but a lot it. of dudes go over there. And that's what they want. Um, I had the opportunity, uh, top cranny gave me the opportunity. Um, and I had already, uh, my family was already coming out from Arkansas, uh, to come all the way out here to North Carolina to visit me. Like they'd already taken off work and made travel plans and stuff. Uh, so I told them that I, you know, I wanted to see my family and it, it wasn't a, a big deal for me. And especially since I cut, I wasn't on a team that required that, uh, I declined the, the opportunity. Um, and it, yeah, I don't really, it doesn't bother me that that happened. Now, were I on a team that that was a requirement? Yeah, I would have told my family, sorry, like work comes first. Uh, yeah. But that wasn't the case. Yeah. Yeah. Th- when I first got to Anglico, they offered me an opportunity. They're like, you can go or we can send one of the, one of the other Marines, like one of the sergeants. And I'm like, dude, send them. Like, cause at Anglico, you don't have a jump mission. You know, it's not written into the, the mission there anymore. Yeah. Once they, so for those that don't know, a, a lot of guys at Anglico are jump qualified, but um, when they disbanded the active duty Anglicos um, and then they brought them back because of the global war on terrorism, they didn't come back with their jump mission intact. So guys can still go to school, but when you, when you do, you're not getting any jump pay or anything like that. And that's what I was looking at. I'm like, dude, I'm in my thirties. Like I'm not trying to go jump out of a plane and get hurt and I'm not even getting extra pay for it. And it's not even, the pay's not even that great. It's like what, 150 bucks a month or something like yeah. something stupid. My uh, knees and back are already jacked up. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, so I'm, I'm the same way, man. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's cool and I'll go. Like if you need me to go, I'll go. But if it's, if you don't need me to go, I'll, I'll definitely let one of the sergeants go instead of me, you know? Um, what kind of training did you do though? When you, when you first got over there, like what was, what did they do to that? You can talk about that. They, uh, spun you up to get you ready for team deployments. I mean, so you, you have to go to, you know, see just like anybody else who is, you know, pilots, anybody that's in that position where there's the possibility they could, you know, be behind enemy lines or anything like that. So you go to SEER, um, which is definitely some of the most phenomenal training I've ever done in the Marine Corps. Uh, realistically, it's, it's great. Um, it sucks at the time, but looking back on it, man, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then you go to uh, a special operations training course, which just kind of teaches you how everything's different there than it is in the fleet. Um, nothing crazy, you know, shoot, move, communicate, medicate, that kind of stuff. Now, isn't that um, course a standard course for all enablers that are going to be attached to teams? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's part of the package. It's a requirement to be designated as a SOX. Um, so yeah, you do that. And then, uh, you do some level one stuff, um, uh, which is just more proficiency in your MOS, um, in that type of environment. And once you complete those three things, then you can uh, start working. What do you mean by level one stuff? It's just uh, more of the stuff that's relative to how, you know, fires are employed in that type of environment as opposed to a conventional environment. Okay. Yeah. How so often, it's just some of the intricacies of, of soft fires. How was, uh, how was working with John Dillard? It was amazing, man. Uh, John was, was a great dude. Very intimidating dude, but also For sure. uh, very... Uh, very like, you know what I mean? He's like the, the godfather of, of JTACs almost. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and he, he was amazing to work with. And as long as you were good at your job, you know what I mean? Um, it, it was phenomenal. Now, if you were bad at your job, you would know it when John was around. Yeah. Um, he didn't split hairs. He didn't bullshit you. You know what I mean? If you were good at it, you were good at it. If you weren't, you weren't. And, uh, he worked diligently to, to make sure everybody was the best they could be over there. And, uh, I know he's missing the community over there. He was a, a phenomenal person to work with. Yeah. And uh, in, intimidating. You know, Rhino was his call sign for a reason. Uh, huge dude, man. He's big, yeah. big, physically imposing individual, but uh, one of the, the smartest guys when it came to, to fires I've ever met. I actually, so I got to meet John. I went to the, uh, I went actually went to the Marsoc Fires course. Um, Tony Musselman was putting it together and they, they sent me over there to just sit through the classes and stuff and go through it. And, um, he came in and gave us some class and, and I was one of the, probably the classes I, I will take with, I took with me through the rest of my career and I'll, you know, I remember it forever probably is his fratricide class. And, um, it's super intense. You know, you're listening cause yeah. he had the calm and everything from everything that happened. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, of the actual class and stuff like that, but it's super intense. Um, or just hearing it, like when you're hearing the, the calm piece from, every, you know, the JTAC and the team, the members of the team and the pilot and, and knowing what's going to happen. Um, it left, a it left a, a huge mark in me. And that is why when I attached to my advisor team, cause I, I attached my advisor team like a month later, that's one of the reasons I was like, fuck, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like I need to get in the pubs. You know, I was con- That's why I was earlier. I said, I was constantly reading the pubs. That class is one of the main reasons why I was like that because you know, he instilled it in you like, dude, this is your job. Like there is no, you can't mess up. Like that's, that's just it. Don't mess up, you know, because this is what happens. And I tried to carry on that kind of thinking and that thought process. And I tried to instill that in guys that I taught JFO and JTAC primers in the future. Um, I actually took his class that he gave us, obviously his was classified and he had, you know, certain things that he could do with it that I couldn't, but I took that you know, event and, and stuff. And I, I turned it into my own little class and I would give it to, um, like the recon guys and the snipers and my own dudes and, and stuff while we we're on ship. And that was probably one of my favorite classes to teach because you could really see it in people's eyes. If they took it seriously, like they finally realized like, Oh shit. Like, because there's nothing, there was nothing worse for me than going out to an OP and seeing someone like doing a control. Like maybe I got a JFO over here and uh, one time specifically, I remember go, walking up to an OP. Um, it was another team that was out there shooting. So I just walked up while they're in the middle of a mission and I was talking to the JFOs. One of them was working with the aircraft and doing the talk on and stuff like that. And they had skids come in and um, this is at Camp Pendleton and the skid started shooting. And I'm like, Hey, is that your target? And he's like, no, no, sir. Or no staff sergeant. And I'm like, then fucking tell him to stop. I'm like, what are you talking? Why are you just letting him continue to shoot the wrong target, man? I'm like, look, yeah, I'm yeah. like, dude, I'm like, you guys, this isn't, I know you're looking at this. Like I'm sitting on the OP. I got my monster in my hand and I'm doing a control. I was like, but you got to look at this. Like it's real life. I was like, if that wasn't your target, you just fucking wasted a building that wasn't the right target. And that has real world ramifications. You know, that can change, that can change the ROEs, you know, the rules of engagement in a combat zone. You can literally change the shape of a battlefield because of a bad decision that you make one bad bomb on a, on a wedding party or something like that. And you know, you're on national news and you're maybe go to jail cause you fucked up, you know, you're going to get investigated and stuff. And it's, yeah, our, it's, uh, our tactical level decisions, uh, or faults or successes have strategic level, uh, implications. It's yeah, just sure. the nature of our job, man. It's, it's crucial. 
Yeah, it's and it's it's hard for young guys that haven't deployed yet or haven't seen the real world effects of ordnance to understand that, you know. And I mean, the only way that I could push that is to, you know, teach that fratricide class and bring out real world examples like the Apaches hitting the APC during the invasion. I think it was in the Gulf War um, or like the a- a- A-10s, you know, hitting the the uh, um, track and Nazaria, you know, and stuff like that. And that's you have to learn from the past. And I just some guys, like I said, you just they, they can't understand it until you give them like a good um, scenario or real world example of what happens. And John Dillard's class did that for me, man. It literally changed how I looked at how I was employing ordinance because I was like, holy shit, like I need to understand fully the full picture of what's happening. Um, I can't just wing it and be like, yeah, it's probably going to be okay. Cause you know, that's just not it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I knew you knew John. I know everybody was over there knows John and I knew, uh, yeah. I know, like you said, he was missing the community. I didn't know him obviously as well as you guys did. I only met him briefly, but he did have an impact on, on just me, just, you know, his, his, uh, aura, you know, of being a professional. Yeah. He's one of those dudes. He's one of those dudes. It's like, if I'm talking to this guy, I better know what the hell I'm talking about. And cause he's like a walking pub. He wrote some of the pubs, you know? Yeah. You know? And yep. it's like, so don't fuck around. Cause he's going to call you on your bullshit. And yeah, he is. And that's going to make you feel like a real asshole when the dude calls you out in front of other people. Yep. And there's no, there's no behind closed doors debriefs. There's no whispered debriefs. Like when, when you, when you control and debrief over there, even if you're not getting evaluated or, or doing a stand check or anything like that, you're getting debriefed in front of everybody. Everybody's learning yep. from those mistakes that you're making. You can't you can't hide. There's no hiding. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're if you're bad, people are gonna know. That's how we did it at Anglico too. It's like, hey man, we all coming together and we're breaking down your mission. You know, in front of everybody. This is what you said. You should have said this. This is what you did. You should have done this. You know, you did this correct. You did, you know, and um sometimes people can't take that. You know, you got to put your big boy pants on and be ready to have some thick skin because we're not perfect and we all mess stuff up, you know? Um, and prime example, you were there at, um, BT was a BT 11 out on the Island when I was doing a control with a F 18. Um, and it was a night control. We were, it was supposed to be guns and the pilot was a new pilot. He came around and, um, he, he came around and the first time he was supposed to attack, he aborted. And I was like, what'd you abort for? And he said that he forgot to take his weapon off safe. And I'm like, Oh my God, this guy. <laughs> and then the next time, next time he came around, you know, and, and it was a night control, like I said, and I was using an IR pointer. So you had to get the visual tally call. So visual friendlies contact the mark or tally the target or whatever. And he came and this is like his third pass. Cause they kept messing it up. And he came around and he was like, uh, tally friendlies, you know, contact or visual, the <laughs> yeah. target or something like that. And I was like, cleared hot. And Tabby, who was the air officer was like, fuck aboard, aboard. What the fuck are you? Doing? And just started yelling at me. And I'm like, Oh shit. And yeah. dude, I felt like such a piece of shit. And I know you remember, I'm sure you remember that incident when it happened. I literally thought about that for months, for months. Yep. I would go back and be like, damn it. Why did I do that? I'm an idiot. You know? But I think that's the kind of mentality you have to have to be good at that job because you have to look at the little things and be like, they matter. You can't be like, oh, the little things don't matter. Let's let it go. Like little things like that matter. And the rules of being a JTEC are written in blood. You know, like there's a reason why things are done the way they're done. And I think if so, yeah, definitely. I I 100% agree with that. It's it's very important. And if you if you try and just overlook the little things, then they're going to compound into big things. 
And mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm my own worst critic, man. I can get a debrief and I'll beat myself up a million times more than the guy who debriefed me. And I, my thought process has always been like this. I get nervous before every time I get on the hooks. Yep. Now, as soon as I key the hook, it's all the nervousness dissipates, right? It's, it's game time. But I feel like if I get to the point where, one, I don't get nervous about this job before I control, and two, at the end, I don't beat myself up about things I mess up. When I get to that point, I shouldn't be doing this anymore because I don't care enough. For sure. Uh, and that's... To me, that's it. If I ever get to that point, then I'm done uh, doing the JTAC thing uh, yeah. because that's dangerous. Yeah, when I was a when I was a team chief at Anglico, it was like I would do a control, and even as a senior dude over there, I'd be like, "All right, what do I do? Like, come on, guys, like sergeants, like don't fucking hold back, man. Like, if I mess something up, like tell me because you know that's how we learn. You know, don't be afraid. You can't be the gray man where you just hide in the back and you never, no. you know, you never actually do the work. You just because when the time that you get called up and have to do it, and no one's ever corrected you, or you never put yourself out there to to fail in training, um, yeah, it's just gonna hurt you in the end. Um, how how did the how did the JTAC training differ from like what you did at Tenth Marines um, compared to like what you did over at Marsoc? <laughs> Well, so going over there, man, so you know how it is at 10th Marines generally. You know, a lot of the time it's just you get handed a section from the air officer, you do a nine line, you know, and then the next guy takes a section. Generally, yeah. it's, you know, the OP cast one because of the limited assets and yep. the amount of dudes we have to get through. Like, it's just the nature of it. But when I went over there, it was literally just me. So assault support, soup to nuts, assault support, raid. Cast, IDF, everything. So it was eye-opening not having an air officer to do all the planning or doing any of that stuff. It was only me. Uh, and I'd never, I'd, I don't even think that I had seen the uh, assault support TAC SOP. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Before I went over there. And then I'm, I'm no shit. Like like you said, uh, getting in the pubs, studying, reading, trying to learn everything I can about this because I've never had to do it before. Yeah. And now I've got to do everything soup to nuts, mm-hmm. uh, 100%. With, you know, every now and then, you know, you'll have an air officer. But 90% of the time, man, it's it's you. It's you doing it. Um, yeah. So that's a huge difference between the fleet and going over there. And that's what I tell a lot of dudes. You know, dudes approach me knowing my background and they, they want to go over there. So they want to talk to me and I'll sit them down and talk to them about it. And that's one of the things I tell them, man. It's you, There's a million things that are expected out of you there that aren't necessarily expected uh, in the fleet. Um, how, and so for those, I think we already said it, but so the standard is five years as a support guy over at, at Marsoc. How many deployments did you do in that, that time frame? Uh, so I did three, uh, I was scheduled for four. Uh, one of them didn't happen, but yeah, so I ended up doing three total. Okay. Can you talk about any of those or, uh, I mean, not, not specifically just that I did three, uh, in the five years I was over there and that, uh, you know, it was, uh, both, uh, rewarding, fulfilling, and uh, a great experience in the personnel that I worked with on those deployments. The level of proficiency that I was surrounded by was uh, phenomenal. That's that made the transition a little difficult. So, yeah, um, I bet, man. The having being around people that want to be there is completely different than being at a regular unit where dudes are just you know skate trying to skate out of work and stuff like that, or trying to do as little as possible to get you know so they can get home. Um, working on, working with like high level dudes, it's super rewarding. And it's like, you know, the cheesy phrase, like steel sharpened steel, you know, being around other people that are really proficient just drives you to, to become more proficient on your own because you don't want to, you know, fail in front of your peers, um, and let these dudes down. So what, what did you, what kind of training did you bring from, you know, MARSOC back to 10th Marines that you tried to implement with the guys that you work with as JTACs and JFOs? 
Um, so coming back here, I came back to the fleet and I went straight to ATS uh, and started teaching the primers, which have changed a lot since we were there the first time. Yeah. Uh, it's substantially different now with the TNR, but it's it's one man. Uh, it was just me. So I, I'm the only dude over there oh, doing man. it all. Um, so maybe implementing things, I couldn't do as much. Uh, I was able to bring a lot of the experience that I had and um, some of the maturity that I gained in growth over there and kind of push that knowledge on to the guys that were coming through my class there. Uh, so really, really driving home some of the importance of things. Like you talked about that fratricide class, really being able to drive that home to those dudes, the importance of being good at this job uh, and talking to them about that. And then talking about some of my experiences, um, I think was, was definitely valuable. I will say, uh, you know, it's, they say you're going to come back and push all this knowledge to the fleet, but it's, it's not really like that. Like I came back and I didn't know, like, there was no TNR when I left. We didn't mm-hmm. use McTims, none of that. So I came back, and the biggest learning curve for me was trying to, you know, get in the TNR, figure out what all that that stuff was, figure out how to track all my currency and controls in McTims because I never used McTims. So it was it was a big learning process. But I think just my knowledge and some of the maturity and experience was what I was able to bring back the most. Yeah. Especially in the seat that I got put in when I first got back at the schoolhouse there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. McTims became like a thing. I think I was getting ready to punch out on my second Mew and that's when they were like, Hey, we're using McTims and you got to upload all your controls to this system. And it was still like a, it was a pain in the ass, you know, it was a working, I don't know how it is now, but it was like, we were working through so many issues, you know, you had to maintain your, your IPR and McTims now because McTims was like, you know, still, still up and coming, I guess. But I I know they were trying to like make it kind of more like the air force, how they, how they track their dudes. And I could see it being efficient that way, but you know, I was there for the learning pain, so I didn't really get much out of it. Um, I think I, you know what? I, I disagree with bringing dudes back after five years. And I don't know how you feel about that, but I feel like once you're in a unit like that, just like I, just like I disagree with the, and I don't know if it's still like that, but before it was like, Hey, you're going to do one enlistment basically, or three years as a JTAC. And then, Hey, you're going to go be a fire's chief. Like you did your JTAC time. Now it's time to be a fire's chief. And I disagree with that and I disagree with bringing dudes back after they did their five years because I feel like at that point, that's when you got the most knowledge. Like you're, you actually understand it, you know, a, a new JTAC, like you said, coming out of schoolhouse, you don't know everything, you know, the baseline, you know, you understand the concept, but you don't know how to, you know, necessarily, or you understand the theory, but doing it and, you know, in practice is different. And at three years, three years in the fleet as a JTAC, you learn so much. And to pull a guy like that and go, okay, well, now it's time to go be a recruiter. You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know why we do it to ourselves where we drain our, our own knowledge. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts on that or if you want to expand on that at all. So, man, the, the five-year thing, like I kind of get it uh, big picture-wise. I'm, I'm not a huge political person, right? I never have been, never been big in a lot of the political stuff. So I get, I get it from an aspect, but from what you said is, is a big thing, right? So, and I feel for the team guys sometimes, uh, because with that five years and the rotations and everything, I feel like they, at least me, like it was probably three years, uh, before I had like, not a hundred percent, but a really firm grasp on like the team dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Who the different dudes in the team were, what they did, what was expected of you exactly kind of really figured everything out. And by the time I figured everything out, I did like one more deployment as a really seasoned dude on the team. Like I, I pretty much, 
it was the same dynamic as if I were like one of the element leaders, right? It wasn't a, a lot different. It was, I was treated like one of the more senior dudes on the team because I had the experience. Yeah. And about the time you get there, you got to go back to the fleet. And now the teams are getting these brand new dudes that they have to teach everything again uh, about the team dynamic and whatnot. I, I know it must be difficult on those dudes. And for me, uh, I, I do see the perspective of, yeah, you get everything figured out and then you go back to the fleet. Um, now for me on a personal level, I, uh, I did not want to stay, uh, longer. I know some dudes do. Um, and it's not that I didn't love it over there. I did love it. Uh, selfishly, I wanted to stay there. Um, but end state, it was, it was my family. I had two kids while I was there. Yeah. Uh, didn't, didn't know them. You know what I mean? Cause I was never here. My old lady was just wore out, you know, five years of your husband ever being home. It, it, it tires you out. So by the time I hit five years, you know what I mean? It was best decision for me to make for my family was to leave and come back here. Yeah, I'm, you know, selfishly, I'd love to keep doing the, the cool guy shit and the big boy rules, but I had to focus on my family, and that's really what brought me back to the fleet. No, that makes sense, man. And I imagine the divorce rate over there is quite high with the amount of time that people are gone. It is definitely, it's hard, already hard enough on families because just being a regular JTAC or a regular Ford Observer, you're going to the field constantly, you're going to train constantly and stuff like that. And with the, you know, um, an increased amount of training and stuff that you have to do over there. I can see how that can be super hard on a family. Um, so, you know, no, I get it. You know, um, I don't know. I, what was it like when you, when you had to check out though? Like, did you, did you like, fuck man, I can't believe I'm leaving. The, I'll be honest with you, man. The, the transition is one of the hardest things I've had to do. Um, it's been tough, man. Um, <laughs> Leaving there and just the level of proficiency of guys you're surrounded with, the level of responsibility, the the level of maturity around you, and then coming back to the fleet that, honestly, I left the fleet as a sergeant, mm-hmm. and I came back as a gunny. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's also a substantial difference in responsibilities and things that I'm expected to do or know, and mainly on the administrative side. Yeah. That I didn't really have to do. I didn't have Marines. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now I have, you know, shit, 40 Marines because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm in the division FSEC now. So it was a very hard transition that way. And as well as mentally for me coming back from being on the go 24 seven, just go, go, go nonstop, constantly busy, constantly operational, constantly doing shit. And then coming back here and just everything stops. You know, I went to ATS and the the idea is that you get a break right from the tempo when you go, they put you somewhere where you can have a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. And I greatly appreciate that. Uh, It was definitely needed, but it's hard to go from a hundred miles an hour to a dead stop. Yeah. And then, you know, anything you're dealing with, like, for example, metal stuff, is it's easy to kind of compartmentalize it and push it back in the back because you're constantly going. You're yeah. going, 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 going. Then you come back to the fleet and stop, and all this shit that you've been able to kind of bottle up and push out of the way all of a sudden now comes to the forefront, and that's also difficult to deal with. So it's it's a tough transition, man. I'll be honest. Yeah, the mental health, man, mental health in all aspects of the military is something that guys have, I mean, obviously, everybody's different, you know, everybody reacts to stressors differently, everybody reacts to training differently, everybody reacts to combat differently, you know, someone getting killed, you know, all these things, it's, I don't know, we can, we could talk mental health for days, probably, because it's just such a, it's such a thing that it's a very individual thing the way I look at it. And the problem with mental health is that we have all these programs and these services and stuff like that, but it doesn't matter if the first step isn't taken and that's the person like reaching out and going, Hey man, I need, I need some help, you know? Um, and that's, I think that's our biggest issue is guys, you know, 
saying it. You know, like, hey, I need I need to go talk to somebody. And it, maybe that's just all they need to do is just vent, you know. Um, it's a real struggle. And I don't know. I, I remember we came back from my 3-6 deployment. One of my scouts, he got into some he got into some crazy stuff while he was there. And um, he came he came up to me after the deployment. He's you know he was basically basically crying, and he's just like, man, you know, sergeant, you know, I can't sleep. You know, I need I something's wrong. And I was like, all right, man, let's go talk to chaps. You know, let's go let's go do this. And I I've always heard people say that people get shunned for having you know asking for help and stuff like that. And I never really saw that. And I really felt like. I was glad that he respected me enough and trusted me enough to come up to me and tell me like, Hey man, I'm having problems. And I think that was like, I don't know. I thought that was huge that he, that he had that faith in me and I'm glad he did it. You know, he's, he's, I'm assuming he's doing fine. Now I talked to him not too long ago. He's out of the Marine Corps now and I know he's working and stuff like that. So, um, but I don't know, man, mental health. It's just, like I said, it's an, it's a huge individual thing. And it was, I mean, it was, it was tough. Uh, coming back and having to address some of that stuff, especially, you know, the stigma behind it and, and all that, that, you know, you're, you, and I was raised in a very traditional, you know, Southern household, you know, men tough, you don't really cry or show mm-hmm. emotion or anything like that. So it was, it was really tough to finally identify and, and make that step. And it, and it, it really took my home life uh, kind of being affected by it for me to look in the mirror, realize that I needed something and to go talk to somebody. And I would definitely encourage anybody uh, who's having any type of, of mental health issues or think they may be to not be held back by anything, man, and, and go out there and talk to somebody and get that help. Cause it, it, you know, it helped me night and day, uh, especially during that difficult time of a transition when it was rearing its head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could have, could have went a lot worse than it did. Uh, but you know, my family being part of the strength that helped me identify it and actually, Hey, say, Hey, I need some help and go talk to somebody. It's, uh, yeah, man, it's definitely helpful, and I really encourage anybody who's struggling with that to to do it. it did, there's a lot of things out there to help you. Did you do? Did you go talk to somebody like on the books? You know, did you like did your chain of command know, or was that something you did? Because uh, I know there's a lot. So, there's a lot of ways to do it anonymously too. There are. So I did initially. I went uh, went and talked to the the mo about it for a bit to talk to him. But there's a couple different routes, right? You got there's two different ways that you should attack it. The way it was explained to me is one is yeah, medicine helps. But two is talking to somebody, whether that's, you know, therapy or however you want to do that. So I went to the MO and talked to him. But my actual other stuff that I do is off the books. And there's a lot of organizations out there that you can talk to that aren't directly linked to the DOD. Uh, and you know what I mean? They, they You can talk to them without fear of reprisal or, you know, the the implications of losing, you know, your job or your career or anything like that. And you can just be completely open with them and not have to be scared. There's a lot of avenues for that. Um and, you know, if anybody wants any advice on that, I'm always available if they want to ask. But, yeah, I went and talked to some people and that helped out a lot. Also talking to people who've de- dealt with the same thing I have, you know, peer-to-peer, uh, peer-to-peer sure. talk uh, a sure. lot as well. And, you know, I think that, you like, you keep saying, you're like, I went and talked to this person, went to talk. That's really it. You just need someone to talk to. Like, people need to have someone that they feel like they can trust, that they can talk to and, like, let this stuff out. And it's hard to, I think for some people, it's really hard to open up to people because you don't think they're going to understand or you're going to get some kind of judgment that, you know, yeah. like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You know, you're supposed to be a Marine. You're supposed to be, you know, you came from Marsoc. You're supposed to be this Marsoc dude, you know? like <laughs> Exactly. That's the stigma. Yeah, but I think it's self-induced. I don't think it's necessarily, 
I don't think it's necessarily institutionally like that as much as people say it is. I think it's mostly yeah. self-induced stigma where you think that you're too good for that. You know, I shouldn't be having this problem, so I'm not going to go talk to somebody. Um, yeah, man. Um, so before I shift gears, do you, you want to kind of just go over maybe a couple things that people that might be looking to go and screen, like what they should do to prepare or what, you know, I don't know, any kind of advice that you would give somebody that might be looking at going over to Marsoc Fires? Yeah, man. I mean, some of the some of the biggest things is, is physical preparation is huge, right? You got to be you got to be in, in good shape to be able to keep up with those dudes because they're all in phenomenal shape. Um, and it's a physicality is a large aspect of the job, but also uh, being very very proficient in the job, right? Not just going out and doing a nine line on the op. Mm-hmm. Uh, really push yourself to bit get, get put into very tactical dynamic situations where you're controlling aircraft very mm-hmm. dynamic situations because that's what you're going to be doing and get used to more than one aircraft right get used to having multiple aircraft in a stack being on the move being dynamic having multiple targets moving targets you just have to make your training as realistic and dynamic as you can to be prepared to go over there yeah um, but you also have to be able to think about things second and third order effects um and and it, like everybody says the thinking man's game it really is especially over there and the more you can come over there being able to have a thought process outside of line one, line two, line three, it's going to help you. Yeah. Um, being able, being able to do that and being flexible. And then uh, another, you know, one of the biggest things, if if you have a family, man, prepare them, prepare your family and prepare yourself um, because it's going to be difficult for them. Yeah. I think um, going over to Anglico for me was a great um, open my eyes to the amount of training that you can do. Um, that you just don't know about that because everyone gets in that mentality like, all right, we're going to the hill. We scheduled this training area, grab this stuff. All right, we're out here. All right, now it's time to go home. And I just, I don't know. I figured out how to schedule my own ranges. I found out that like, you can just schedule a range. Like, oh, what? You can just schedule a range? Like, I didn't know. I could just call the squadrons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the other thing. Yeah. Having having so many pilots at Anglico because every team has multiple pilots on it opened up so many avenues for us to be like, Hey, do you guys need support for this? Or they would call us. They'd be like, they knew their buddy was there. Like, Hey, can you send someone out to Yuma to do like two days of cast for this? You know, like on Thursday, like, sure. Yeah. I got a guy. And, <laughs> and Anglico was cool enough where they'd be like, Hey, do you want to go? Yeah. Okay. Here, here's hurry up and do your funding stuff. And here's your hotel or whatever. Here's where you're staying. Go out there and, and do it. And, um, yeah, man, like thinking outside the box and thinking outside the normal standard training that big Marine Corps gives you is for sure like the way to go because that's how it is in combat. Like it's not sitting on the OP and going, okay, you know, the, you, this is me, you know, it's um, controlling from vehicles, controlling on the move, controlling in dynamic areas where you have, like you said, multiple sections on, on station. Maybe you have rotary wing and fixed wing, and maybe you got like a, some kind of intelligence bird or something like that. You know, all these different things that you don't really think about that you shouldn't be first exposed to in a combat zone. Um, so I guess it's good that someone like you comes back from like Marsoc and you can bring that kind of knowledge base over to teach that to other guys, because that was definitely something I didn't feel like I didn't know that I didn't understand that as a JTAC at 10th Marines. When I got to Anglico is when I kind of, that kind of, that those doors and those understandings of those things kind of opened up for me because I was like, Oh shit, like here's all the stuff that we can do and, and we can actually go out and practice it, you know? And it helped being at Camp Pendleton and, and the West coast where the training areas are way better. You know, yeah. just, <laughs> yeah. what training areas did you guys use out there? Cause I know you guys use a lot of different ones. 
all all over the place, man. We went to we went to ranges all over the country. Really, anywhere you could think of a range, we we probably went out there and trained at it uh, with all different types of aircraft, all different squadrons, mm-hmm. uh, all different services. You know, it's a joint environment, so you're training with everybody that you can possibly think of. And yeah. it's yeah, the traveling is amazing over there. Like if you want to travel, man, I tell you what, when you get over there, you get to do a lot of traveling, and it's amazing. Some of the places I got to go and see is is amazing. <laughs> Like it's, it's, it's well worth it. Oh it's yeah. Well I remember I, that just reminded me of a couple of your Facebook posts of, uh, yeah, yeah. no, okay. I'm not going to mention anything, but I know some of the, you did get to go see some cool stuff. Some, yeah. We got to go see some sites and stuff like nothing crazy. Like got to go to Petra, which was cool, yeah. you know, and like see, you get to see some stuff that you would otherwise never see like in the world. It's <laughs> you would never get to travel to those places and you're not paying to travel there with anything other than your time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So that's one thing I miss about the military is the travel for sure. That's why I'm yeah. hoping to secure a job. Um, my, my goal would be to get paid to make documentaries, to travel around. Oh, dude, that'd and be awesome. That's like, that's kind of what I'm working towards. You know, that's kind of my, what I'm, I'm pushing for. Um, because I just like to travel and see stuff. And what you're going to find, dude, when you get out is you can't talk to people because you feel like an asshole. Cause every time they say something about some place, you're like, Oh yeah, I've been there. Oh yeah. I've been, yeah. I've seen that. Like, Oh yeah. You know, I'm like, Oh yeah. I've been to Hong Kong five times. You know, and they're like, what? Like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. You should go to this place. You know, there's the hotel you should stay in, you know, it's, and when you, and when it's, all civilians and you, like I said, you kind of start feeling like you just don't want to talk about it because you become that guy, you know, you're like the one up guy. Yeah. And so that's something just to look forward to, you know, when you get out. So something to think about, (laughs) um, which why one, I like doing these podcasts because I can talk to guys and you get it, you know, you understand. Um, I'm lucky Michael Farrell lives right down the road. My buddy, he, he was over at Anglico. He was in Oki and stuff like that as well. And we can talk about shit. And he's, he's the same way. He's like, dude, I can't talk to anybody because I just feel like an asshole, you know, cause I've got to do all this cool <laughs> stuff that like in one, one, just one of the trips I've ever gotten to do would be something great for the average person, you know? And I've gotten yeah. to do these things so many times that it's just crazy. And yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, I get, I get that feeling here. Uh, right now because coming back from you know uh, over there my most recent experiences for the past six almost six years were over there so a lot of times when i'm relaying experiences or trips i'm like oh when i was at you know this place yeah when i was at mar soccer when i was with you know mrb and then everybody's like yeah we get it you're mar soccer. I'm like, it. yeah i know i'm not trying to be an asshole that's just all my experiences for the past almost six years <laughs> so. yeah well now wait until you're out and people haven't done anything they've never left their hometown <laughs> you know i'm yeah. from indiana people People in Indiana and no, no hate on, you know, my friends and family in Indiana, but people, it's like they work all year to do their one family trip on spring break to Florida and then come home and get back to work, you know? And it's like, I don't know. I have one cousin that lives in Italy. She was on the show the other day talking about the uh, coronavirus and what was going on over there. Yeah. And, um, her and one of my other cousins are like the only ones that travel or have traveled and seen stuff. And I'm like... I just tell them, like, I really wish more of the family, just more of everybody could get out and see stuff, you know, get out and see the world and and even the country. Like, driving through the United States is such a trip if you've never done it. It's, yeah. uh, I mean, I love Utah. That's, my fa- that's like, one of my favorite places to go. I might go out there and go camp next week because BLM land is still open for, uh, for camping nice. for people that don't know that. Um, and I'll tell you, man, seeing other parts of the world that don't have it as well off as we do here really opens your eyes to how good we have it in yeah. this country, honestly. It, it really... 
is mind blowing how some of the other countries are and, mm-hmm. it, and it helps you appreciate the little things a lot more. It helps you appreciate the little things and it really pisses you off when people take it or don't take advantage of it, but don't appreciate it themselves. You're like, dude, if you only knew, man, I, I tried to relay seeing the refugee camp in Djibouti, you know, um, to people. It's like, dude, these are Ethiopians that are refugees. They're living in Djibouti because there's like a war going on in their country. They're starving. They're living in corrugated steel huts, you know, and it's a hundred and whatever degrees outside. Like they're baking, you know, it's just, they'll get in fights over bottles of water and stuff like that. It's just like a, it's a totally different, I don't know. It's like I said, man, it makes you really appreciate stuff. And it's why most stuff, if, if I get a little bit of, um, I don't know, pushback or whatever you want to call it from, from just living day to day. It's like, whatever, man, like it could always be worse, you know? <laughs> yep. And I think guys like you and me and stuff like that, that's why we look at this coronavirus and being locked down or whatever. And just how people are freaking out. It's like, dude, calm down. Like we can still go to the grocery store and buy food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Wait, do you have, do you have running water and food and lights in your house and a roof? Like it'll, it'll pass. Our, our <laughs> def- right. Our, de- our definition of hard times and of who or what like poor is in the United States is so like skewed compared to um, the rest of the world. It's just there. I, I've talked about it before. There's this Chinese dude. Uh, it's on Netflix. He did a uh, comedy special called uh, Asian Destroys America or something like that. And he's like, dude, you guys live in the NBA. You have everything. You have so much, like so much of everything. You don't even realize it. He's like, Americans yeah. don't realize how good they have it. And I'm like, yeah, he's right, dude. Like that's a hundred percent true. It's just, um, yeah. So let's talk about, uh, your new motorcycle, bro. Oh yeah. You like that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> why don't you tell everybody what you just got? Oh, well, I got a new, uh, 2020 Indian challenger. How do you like uh, that? Um, I'm loving it now. I just got it out of the shop. I got, uh, you know, the aftermarket pipes and bars and whatnot put on it. Um, it's a man, that thing rips. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. What were you riding um, before? Oh, I still have it. I have a 07 Dyna Lowrider, uh, oh, Harley-Davidson okay. in my garage. I got that from my dad uh, a while back, and it's uh, I still love it. I'm not I'm not switching brands or anything. I, I love both of them. The, the, the stuff on the Indian's amazing, and I love my Dyna. But now I can take the Dyna and show my son how to work on it and mm-hmm. eventually pass it down to him, keep it in the family. Which one rides better? Uh, well, the Indian's a lot more comfortable because it's a big old bagger, so it's good for long hauls, but... If you're just ripping around town, man, that dyna's fun. You can't beat it. That thing looks huge on you. Like, I saw a picture of you on sitting on that Indian. Yeah. I'm like, Jesus, that is a huge bike. What's it's it? uh, over 800 pounds, man. Oh, Jesus, dude. That's crazy. It don't feel like it, though. Once you get it going, man, she she feels uh, similar to the, the dyna. Obviously, a little bit heavier coming into corners, but maneuvering her, man, once you get her going, she feels real light. Is it pretty quick? Oh yeah, yeah. It's got a uh, 122 horsepower, 128 foot pounds from the factory. Uh, so it's it's faster than than most things from the factory on two wheels that are cruisers, not sport bikes, but cruisers. Yeah. yeah. What all What all did you already add to it? Uh so I put some handlebars on it. I put a uh, stage one intake. I put some exhaust, some crash bars, uh, and I upgraded the uh, navigation unit navigation unit on your motorcycle yeah i know right it's it's crazy <laughs> to me before i didn't have anything like that i'd have one of my brothers next to me like hey can you pull up your nav so i can know where we're going sometimes you know that's funny <laughs> it's a strange place yeah did you sell your car to get that or do you still I did. have okay so i built that scion you're familiar with that because you're a car guy so yeah. i built that scion pretty much from stock up to a turboed scion and everything and 
the agreement, you know, me and the wife made, she handles most of the finances was if I sold the car and then bought another vehicle cash money, then I could, uh, I could finance a new motorcycle. So that's the deal we made. So I went through with it and it's initially, I was really sad when I sold the car cause you know, I built it. But, uh, once I got on the motorcycle, that kind of, kind of faded away. <laughs> yeah. What all do you have done to your FRS? Uh, so I had a SBD turbo kit in it running 10 pounds off the wastegate. I had clutch flywheel catch cans, uh, all the little associated small stuff that goes with, uh, putting a turbo kit in a car and having it be reliable, uh, remote tune with Viscani through, uh, ECU tech, uh, just a bunch of little bits. I don't remember all of it. <laughs> yeah. I know some of the people are going to hate on us rice burners. What, you know, some of us don't like those, but whatever, dude, I, I love my Evo when I had it. I was talking to my oh, kid today about nice, it. Man. It was nice. I sold it though. Now I'm driving a Jeep, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm driving a Saab SUV now, so it's pretty lame. But what are you going to do? It's nice inside. It's got leather and, you know, it's comfortable. Yeah. Good good cash price for 84,000 miles on the Odo. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, man, cars are great. Cars are great, like cars, bikes, stuff like that, mechanical stuff. Like if you're into that, that's such a great relief to like. Oh, yeah. It's like therapy, you know. You're out here turning wrenches on the car. You're cussing at it because you busted your knuckles <laughs> on a whatever you know, where's the damn 10 millimeter at? You can't find it anywhere. Never, never. It's not here. That's where it's at. Uh, nope, it's gone. your boys come over and you know, you get working, working on a car with one of your homies. Like that's such good times. Yeah. I, if people don't do it, man, I, that's, I, I didn't like being a mechanic in the Marine Corps, but it did give me some skills that have saved me thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, I put almost probably almost 10, 10 grand in parts on my Evo and that none of that was labor. That was all just parts because I did it all. Me, I had uh, one of my buddies, Wasson. He uh, helped me do a lot of the stuff at first. And yeah, man, just working on a car is such a good time. Um, do you, what's your future plans for your bike? Uh, so eventually, gonna get uh, they just it's it's new. Twenty twenty is the first model year they release this model, so they're still working on a lot of the aftermarket. So mm. uh, a cat delete on the exhaust, uh, a tuner, maybe some cams. We'll see. Um, but yeah, it's I put pretty much everything on it that I wanted on it from the get go for a while. But I know eventually I'll get hungry for some uh, some more power adders. <laughs> you got to right. Yeah, it's just in my blood too, man. I love I love building stuff. I love working on stuff uh, just as much as I love riding it. Yeah, it's different having a Jeep, you know, because now I'm like, man, like I, there's no performance. I'm not gonna do performance stuff because <laughs> it's a fucking Jeep. Like there's I'm not getting yeah. anything out of it. No, gas mileage is horrible. You know, uh, you can't, you don't really want to make it faster because I don't know if it can handle it. It feels like a spaceship taking <laughs> right. off. Um, I was driving, I'm so used to driving it. Um, after I bought it, I drove cross country and back in it over the summer. I don't know if you followed me on Facebook when I was doing it. I spent three weeks on the road in it though. And uh, I got so used to it. You don't think about it. It's kind of a rough ride. Um, yeah. <laughs> I put my, one of my buddy jumped in it. Michael Farrell jumped in it and we were going down the freeway and I was going like 80 in it. And I think for regular people, it's just like, like he was like holding on the door and I'm We're just like, entering the atmosphere. It just felt smooth to me. They're like, this is your ride, huh? This is how you roll. And, uh, so for me, like the work I want to do to it's different, like maybe some suspension stuff, maybe, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to get a rack for it. I'm, I'm looking at racks and stuff rather than like intakes and, you know, completely different, completely yep. different, but it's cool because, you know, I've been getting into the outdoors a lot, camping and stuff. Like I said, uh, the weather's nice. I might next week. I might go out to Utah and do some camping out there. But it's good for it. It's good for off roading and stuff. I I recommend it for anybody that I always wanted one. And when when I bought my Evo, 
I initially like I went online and they, there was no Evos in town. And, um, I was like, well, let's just go drive around. And if I can't find a car to buy, I'll just get a Jeep, you know? Cause it was like one of those, like, eh, it's a cool car to have, you know, but the yeah. Evo was there. So I got that. Um, all right, man. Well, we're just over, over two hours. Is there anything else you want to talk about before, uh, before we end this? I mean, I don't think so off the top of my head. I really appreciate you having me on. And, uh, like I said, man, if anybody's trying to go that route, I hope uh, they take some of the advice on board here. And uh, I'm always uh, accessible if anybody ever wants to talk. Uh, like I said, I've got the knowledge and stuff. Uh, if they need some help um, or right. some advice for, for going over there, man, I'm, I'm always here to they can bend my ear anytime they want. Are you, You're on Instagram, right? Uh, I don't really use Instagram much. I'm uh, mostly just Facebook. Yeah. Uh, my old lady, she's a, a physical trainer. She has an Instagram. She's big on it, but uh, I don't use it too much. I do on occasion. Okay. Well, if there's any social media or anything you want to put out there, or if there's any kind of organizations or anything that you want to, you know, say thanks for helping me out or whatever, this is uh, this is your time to promote them, dude. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, speaking about the motorcycle club I'm in and some of the work we do, if that's all right. No, go ahead. Yeah, man. So I'm in uh, the Forgotten Sons Motorcycle Club. Uh, we're a national motorcycle club that raises uh, awareness and money for veterans organizations. Um, we've done multiple things uh, here in our area for uh, Pets for Vets. Uh, we work with the Sergeant Eugene Ashley Veterans Shelter down in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. It's a homeless veterans shelter that takes veterans off the streets and gives them uh, transitional housing and, and feeds them and that kind of stuff. So we do a lot of work with veterans, and we're looking at doing uh, some work with the Semper Fi Fund uh, here. And whenever you know some of this lockdown stuff's lifted, and we can have some people together, we're going to have an, uh, a get together for the Semper Fi Fund. So we just do a lot of stuff for veterans uh, nationwide, and we've got chapters across the nation. So if you you see any of the Forgotten Sons there, uh, we're doing the Lord's work for veterans, and that's that's what we love, and that's what we're about. That's awesome, dude. I always hear Semper Fi Fund come always comes up from people that. You know, I don't know. Simplify Funds always seems like one of the best organizations that really seems like they do good work for for veterans and stuff, and give almost all their donations to them like, go back into the community and is given back. And it's like, I don't know. Every time I hear about an event, it always seems like Simplify Fund is involved in that. So I, whenever you get your annual like, hey, you guys want to donate to a charity thing, I would say check out Simplify Fund probably. You know, yeah, um, man, definitely. If uh, if someone wants to maybe try to get into the Forgotten Sons, what's the route for that? Uh, well, let's get on your motorcycle and, and ride around and, and meet some Forgotten Sons and say what's up. Just kind of run into one, huh? Yeah. I mean, we have, uh, we have a Facebook page, my chapter. It's uh, Support Forgotten Sons MC Surf City. Uh, that's our specific chapter. So uh, Support Forgotten Sons MC Surf City is uh, Facebook. And then we also have a website, uh, ForgottenSonsMC.com. Uh, that is still under construction, but it's it's a work in progress. But if you ever want to get into contact with us, yeah, you can look us up on Facebook and uh, shoot us a message. Awesome, man. Well, hey, dude, it's been good catching up. Like it's been years. Like we, I know we BS I know, back man. and forth on uh, Facebook occasionally, but I know we haven't sat down and bullshit in like a long time. So, um, I know, man. keep up the good work in the Marine Corps, man. Spread the knowledge. You know, I know you're a good dude. I know you're a knowledgeable dude. You're a, even before you went to Marsoc, you were like a no bullshit kind of guy, which I appreciated. You know, you came to work and you came to work, you know, that's what you were there to do. And I felt like when we were teaching guys at ATS and stuff, like, you know, you cared about it. And that's, that's the best you can ask for, for a guy that's, you know, sharing the knowledge and 
and molding, you know, Marines is to just care about them and care about the mission that they're going to go do. So, um, you are always a consummate professional and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, telling us your story. And, um, for everybody else that's out there, if you want to hit me up, um, if you, if you want to get in contact with, with Josh and you don't know how to get a hold of him, hit me up on my Instagram. It's jkramergraphics.com or jkramergraphics on Instagram. Uh, my website's jkramergraphics.com. And yeah, that's about it. So everyone have a good one. It's been a real pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, we got to stay in touch more. For sure, dude. All right. All right. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.